0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At
2: Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the
3: Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. Good Monday morning, or Thursday morning to you. Sorry about that. July 7th, folks. It's Tell the Truth Day. This is going to be a fun day, folks. This is where we're going to ask a lot of questions to our team To find out what's really been going on. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth day. It's also Strawberry Sunday day. Oh yeah. Who doesn't love a good Strawberry Sunday? Also Global Forgiveness Day. Which is, by the way, a great day if you are a member of the Clinton Global Initiative. Global Forgiveness Day. The day where we just forgive people that have done us wrong. I forgive you, Matt. Thank you, Ben. I forgive you. For what? Here
4: we go. It's just sort of blanket. It covers everything past and future. Okay, I forgive
5: yeah. both of you.
3: No reason to. But okay. uh, I don't want to ask for forgiveness there. I don't know why that happened. Anyway, Ben, thank you for forgiving us. We um, we got a great show for you. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Barry Latzer, who is an emeritus, Um a uh, professor who has studied criminology for many, many years. And he's going to be talking to us about the rise and fall of violent crime in America, which couldn't come at a better time with two police shootings.
4: Back-to-back days, both of them on video. This, it, this is the day of technology. Both of them like, why did that happen? Because you're watching the video. It's not. It seemed like the police had the whole situation under control, yeah. and then they fired their gun.
3: And one of the two was live streamed by the victim's
4: girlfriend last night in Minnesota or yesterday in Minnesota. Oh. They She was on Facebook live videoing this and then the police shot the, the it, guy driving the car.
3: I, did, I didn't see. Did they shoot him live? It was on the video. Holy cow. I just saw the aftermath.
4: And, and uh, Facebook took the video down because it's, uh, it, I mean, it's... Well, it's, it's now it's,
3: evidence. <laughs> it's, it's evidence and it's, it's also it's, quite violent. It's quite violent. And... Then you get the kind of the play-by-play with a very calm woman, yes, who's she, still sitting in a car with the police officers holding guns at her. She and, said
4: something like, "Do not tell me you just killed him,"
3: yeah,
4: or something like uh, that. Yeah. It was no, kind of a weird, was, a weird phrase. But
3: in a way, I think this is the future, right? The future is going to be live streaming everything,
4: and people will start doing that with uh, police interactions more because of things like this
3: and that As they oh, try to protect it's just, themselves it's tragic
4: and the one on uh, the other day in Louisiana the two police officers had the guy on the ground and then they take a gun and they shot him
3: yeah and they were like rolling around right in and front of a car there's two
4: different cell phone videos that show what happened. and you're just like what was that so that's why they called in the uh, department of justice within 24 hours to take yeah, over the case you because get in here. the 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 state wants to separate themselves so there's no uh, you know, feelings of impropriety going on in the investigation.
3: It's... It, uh, I thought we were kind of getting past this. No! Apparently we need a lot of tr- more training for police and apparently more technology f- training for everyone else that's trying to shoot these videos. It's incredible what's happening. Sure. It, it, from now on, I think everything's going to be captured. There'll be... It's, from now on, you'll just be able to... Carry your Palm Pilot around or what's it called? Your your iPad around. And even if you didn't have that recording, you'll be able to just still go back and retroactively record. It'll record everything, but you can then decide what you want to keep. Then we'll all wear a device. Forget the police just wearing cameras. Every human will wear one. Hmm. Crazy town. We will be talking with uh, Dr. Barry Latzer about... uh, really the The ebb and the flow of violent crime in America it goes up and down it 's like a roller coaster, but uh interestingly, whether you believe it or not in the news it 's safer than it 's been in a very, very, very long time. Um, violent crime is down in america, so we'll we 'll get the latest numbers on that also of course. Uh, Lots of other interesting news stories, a little follow-up on Hillary Clinton and uh, Trump and the emails and all of that. We'll get to that. But first, let's get to Caitlin Thomas, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin, what's going on?
6: Good morning, Matt. Well, update. We have Attorney General Loretta Lynch made it official on Wednesday that she is accepting the FBI's recommendation not to charge Hillary Clinton over her exclusive use of a private email server while she served as Secretary of State. In a statement, Lynch said she met with FBI Director James Comey and the agents who conducted the investigation. With that, Lynch said the investigation was officially closed. Bernie Sanders could endorse Hillary Clinton as early as next week at a joint event in New Hampshire, NBC reports. Sanders has been reluctant to back her and previously said he would try to sway the so-called superdelegates to his side ahead of this month's Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Sanders' efforts to appear to have been successful, though, to influence the Democratic Party's platform draft. Um, and for updates on our two police shootings this week, the U.S. Justice Department Civil Rights Division has opened an investigation into the death of 37-year-old Alton Sterling, who was shot and killed by police while he was pinned to the ground in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, early on Tuesday. Governor John Bell Edwards told reporters Wednesday the FBI, State Police, and U.S. Attorney's Office will also have a hand in the investigation. Police in Minnesota fatally shot a young black man during a standard traffic stop late Wednesday um, like we were talking about earlier, the shooting occurred in Falcon Heights, a suburb of St. Paul, after police reportedly pulled over a vehicle with a broken taillight. According to Lavish Reynolds, a Facebook user who posted a video um, proposing to show the incident and who was in the vehicle at the time, her boyfriend, Philando Castile, who was 32, attempted to get his license and ID out of his pocket when a police officer shot him several times. Um An investigation is currently underway. And to end off your headlines, Matt, an NFL player woke up Saturday morning trapped inside a Florida museum. The Tampa Bay <laughs> Times reports Buccaneers wide receiver Louie Murphy was attending the wedding of a fellow NFL player last Friday night at the Flagler Museum Museum in Palm Beach. He had a bit to drink and ended up falling asleep on the stairs in the museum's courtyard. It sleepy. seems the rest of the wedding guests decided to let him sleep. When he woke up, everyone was gone and the doors were locked. The Times quotes a police report for the incident as <laughs> saying Murphy says he had to break the glass out of a door to unlock it and get to a phone. Wow.
3: Fun stuff. <laughs> it's good to be in the NFL though, man. Everything you want at your they fingertips. They said the uh,
4: the window cost about $1,000 that he broke. <laughs> and him and the museum were trying to figure out how to make that right.
3: Well, so so nobody saw a football player asleep on the steps
4: he's not he's not like a huge guy he's a defensive back, so he's okay. kind of a smaller, more normal sized human being.
3: This is why you don't drink the punch, never drink the punch <laughs> he <laughs> it, just fell asleep
4: it, on the steps and woke up
3: it' kill uh-oh. you yeah, what do you do then i mean do you I'd kind of panic like you want to get out of there, but you know you don't want to set alarms off right and he, but
4: you end up having to and Whatever.
3: Wasn't there a movie about Night at the Museum? Night one, the museum. two, probably three. Yeah. Huh. Were they? Did they get drunk and had to I, sleep it off?
4: I, I, not sure. I not think not one sure. was a night watchman, so he might have needed to be there. And the rest of it was it's just been a lo- like
3: long time since I've watched Teddy night.
4: Roosevelt statues coming alive and riding dinosaurs.
3: So, so if if you're <laughs> Donald Trump, let's say, and okay. let's say your yes. your number one um, your number one opponent had an FBI investigation. Yes. Then the FBI director gets up and basically sh- shuts down the investigation but blows your opponent up. Just blows her up. Almost step
4: by step going through every single excuse she gave, yeah. every single thing saying, "No, I didn't, you know,
3: there was no top secret emails," and he's like, "No, there was." And showing a pattern of lying, right, from this person for a year plus. Um, wouldn't you wouldn't you just Like, grab onto that like a jackal grabs the neck of a gazelle and just hangs on for life. Right. That should be your message for the next week. And especially if Congress is starting to pound on the same message, just grab
1: on.
4: Today, Congress will be grilling, as they call it, uh, the FBI director as to why they're not prosecuting. So that story's out there. And you should stay on that message. Well, this
3: this is what Donald's talking about.
1: So one of my guys who's married to a Jewish woman. This is a very fine person, Dan Scavino. He put out a tweet talking about crooked Hillary Clinton. And on the tweet was a star. It's a star. Like a star. CNN started this dialogue going, it's the star of David. And because it's the star of David, Donald Trump has racist tendencies. These people are sick, folks. I'm telling you, they're sick. Actually... They're the ones with the bad tendencies when they can think that way. They're the one. Then they said, Remember what I said, but there's money around the stars. You know, they took the star down. I said, Too bad. You should have left it up. I would have rather defended it. Just leave it up. And say, No, that's not a star Debbie. that's just a star. I came in like a
3: Let it go, Don. Let that go. Just move on. He goes on. What did he go on about?
4: He, oh, he compares. He's using Frozen to yeah. defend himself against the charges of anti-Semitism. Uh, so, as he described there, he had that that uh, yeah. that meme they found online, that image, right? And it, uh, granted, you know, it was a star on a pile of money. Star of Great. David.
3: Well, it was a six-point star. It's a star.
4: The problem was, is when they track it back to the. Uh, White supremacist chat room. That's where it gets a little sticky. That's where it gets sticky. It says, on Wednesday evening, uh, he tweeted out a picture of a frozen book that included a similar star on the cover, asking, where's the outrage for this Disney book? Well, the Disney book, you have...
3: It doesn't have Hillary Clinton's face on it. Or a pile of money. Or a pile of money. And it
4: didn't come from a white supremacist website. Right. You have the frozen girls, and then they have the star, and it says, 50 free stickers.
3: Uh huh. Right. So, I mean, the, is, just, is, is this, though, his attempt to, like, say Hollywood is corrupt, too?
4: No, he's trying to say, well, I maybe. I mean,
3: is, is that his, you know, because I, I don't ever consider, like, Hollywood and political, you know, they always talk about all the Hollywood stars that are so political. I don't yeah. ever consider that to be Disney. No,
4: in but my head. I, I think what he's saying is here's another example of this being used somewhere, and there's no outrage, but I use it, and everyone goes nuts.
3: Yeah, you used it in a political ad against a candidate. Yeesh. Don't bring it up, Don. You've got, you you had her on the ropes. And you should have just continued with this message. You started with it. Why didn't you finish it?
1: We now know that she lied to the country when she said she did not send classified information on her server. She lied. Look, we have a... a we have a rigged system, folks. Stupidity is not a reason that you're going to be innocent. Okay. It's
3: a
4: great point. Stupidity is not a
3: reason you're going to be innocent. Except then, let's talk about the star. Let's talk about the star. Now, Hillary's very focused. Well, she's not going to talk about the FBI at all. This is what she's talking about.
7: People get hurt, and Donald gets paid. This is in front when of this casino collapse.
3: One of the casinos in hundreds uh, New of
7: People lost their jobs. But Donald Trump, he walked away with millions. And if your governor would start doing his job instead Chris of instead of following Donald Trump around holding his coat, <laughs> maybe we could really get New Jersey's economy moving again. She
4: should have said getting him McDonald's because that was the yeah. story a couple weeks ago.
3: Yeah. No, she, the, but
4: Chris Christie, one of his tasks is he goes and gets Donald Trump his lunch.
3: I don't believe that. That was a story somewhere. It's just someone being rude about Chris Christie. Is uh, is he's standing? She's standing in front of a shuttered down Trump, Trump casino. Plaza yeah. in Atlantic City. So uh, she's on message, doing her best. Doing her best. Donald was on message. Donald's now going to be on Capitol Hill uh, today, I believe. They're a little mad, I think, at him because they they thought that he was doing a really good job because they were for probably the first time in. Months. They were both the Capitol Hill, all the GOP congresspeople, they were on target hitting Hillary while Donald was hitting Hillary. Mm-hmm. And they loved it. And then it lasted about 12 hours. Well,
4: yesterday he starts talking about the FBI and Hillary and all this. And then he starts talking about Saddam Hussein and in the excellent way he dealt yeah. with terrorists. And everyone's like, oh, dude,
3: don't praise, don't praise Saddam him. Hussein. Corker uh, has officially withdrawn any potential you know, opportunity to be the vice president. So did the pig castrator, Joni Ertz. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing, but... now we can't play that anymore. <laughs> no, thank heavens. <laughs> I want to play it. Corker was interesting because um, he seemed amazed. He appeared yesterday with Donald, and he seemed surprised at at really the power and energy that he has around him mm-hmm. and how really well run they are for so few people. But then he's like not want. He doesn't want to be the vice president. Yeah, Who doesn't... Want to be the vice president. I mean, unless you're sure you can be the president, wouldn't you want to be the vice president? Especially with somebody that nobody likes because then you're just a heartbeat away yeah. from the presidency. Right. I don't know. What are these people doing?
4: By the way, the Frozen coloring book. Yeah.
3: On. Uh, you mean the, the the one with the Jewish
4: with, star with of the David, star David, David on it? Um, on the Amazon doc, Amazon page for that coloring uh-huh. book, a lot of people are starting putting up stuff. As a neo-Nazi, this is one of my all-time favorite coloring <laughs> books. <laughs> I love the pictures.
3: Oh, this is so sad. Just stay on target, everybody. Come on. What? It's only it's only July. This thing. We'll vote in November. Then, you know, you'll get a president in January, and you can keep that president for four to eight years. Ah. scary we will take a break when we come back Dr. Barry Latzer will be joining us talking about the rise and fall of violent crime in America folks we're doing better than you might think and better than the news headlines might tell us stick with us we'll be right back Welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend show you know the daily headlines that uh, we talk about on the show and you see in the news would lead us to believe that violence is uh, is on the upswing in America but uh, in fact just two days ago Alton Sterling was shot and killed by a police officer in Louisiana you saw and uh, you can see the video of that all over the news but believe it or not America has actually be- been becoming less violent. And is actually less violent than it has been since the 1960s. In his book, um, our next guest, uh, Dr. Barry Latzer, um, talks about the impact and the surge of violence in the 60s. And also um, talks to us about really kind of where we are today in relation to violent crime. The name of his book is, the title of the book is The Rise and Fall of violent crime in america and we're honored to have emeritus professor with us today uh dr latzer thank you so much for joining us
8: it's a pleasure to be with you matt
3: talk to me um again the news makes it sound like this is the most violent time in america we heard just recently in chicago 60 people shot over the weekend um is it is it really less violent today than years ago are we getting better
8: uh, it depends on where you are. Generally, across the country, uh, we're still in a crime trough, as I call it, which began in the mid-1990s and continues now. But, of course, there are always some spikes. Some cities, though, have it pretty bad right yeah. now. Chicago is one. Uh, Baltimore is another. Um, and I just got the data for the first half of 2016, and, and Chicago homicides
3: are up again. ah.
8: So uh, depends it depends where you live, when you're located. Yeah.
3: Really. And I know in your book, um, you you you, you kind of differentiate a little bit about how violent how, the violence is. I guess it's it's in more pockets. It's in uh, distinct areas or certain areas. Talk to us about is the violence different and, and how does it change with time and how has it changed since the 90s?
8: Oh, it's definitely different. and It was far worse from the late 60s to the early 90s, because the violent crime really was a plague for the entire country. Of course, you still had some differences. Some places were worse than others, but, uh, you know, it doesn't make you feel much better to know that even though you have just a broken arm, the guy next door has a broken arm and a broken leg. Mm-hmm. So it was bad all over the country. It was an, a national problem, and in fact, to some extent, even an international problem. Um, what we're seeing now has people nervous, because of course, they think it might be a harbinger uh, of the end of the crime trough and a new crime boom. Which it could be, no one could say for sure, because you know we have that sort of veil in front of us, and who knows what the future will bring. But uh, we do, we aren't there yet. We're we're not there yet.
3: Is is talk to us about the trough? So uh, I, I guess does that happen because society changes, because laws are changing, and that then you know opens up different types of. Uh, I don't know, um, standards of living st- uh-huh. and, and the cost, uh, you know, afford- more affordable living. Mm-hmm. D- does that create part of this trough or what actually creates the ebb and the flow of yeah. violent crime?
8: Yeah. Um, well, certainly uh, having strong law enforcement and effective law enforcement is part of the story. Uh, But it's not the whole story. Unfortunately, if it were, you know, then we could prevent crime from ever rising again simply by having an extremely uh, effective and and powerful law enforcement uh, system. Uh, But we can't because there are other factors that enter in. Interestingly enough, it's not the economy stupid for violent crime. Hmm. It may be for theft-type crimes, for what we call acquisitive crimes. But violent crimes go up or down regardless of the economy. So here's a, a, a weird example. Great Depression, worst economic situation in the history of the United States, runs from, let's say, you know 1929, late 1929 when the market crashes, right up to, to World War II, 1941. So what happened during that time period? Answer, violent crime was soaring in the first few years, right up to 1933, and then started sinking as of 1934, and kept on sinking even though the economy tanked again huh. in thirty seven, thirty eight. Wow. No correspondence, no correlation between the economic situation and violent crime. But As theft say, probably went theft up, huh? I may be, right. Theft crime is is a different story. Yeah, yeah. And and a criminologist colleague of mine has just done an intriguing study hasn't finished it yet but he thinks there's a relationship between inflation and inquis- uh, acquisitive crimes the higher the inflation the more mm. value is added to goods and therefore the more theft we'll see how his study
3: comes out interesting isn't that 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 is so uh, as far as violent crime goes sometimes you just need a good recession or a good depression and all of uh, a sudden <laughs> it it's it's safer is that just why is, i guess people are fighting to live
8: uh, you mean acquisitive crime, right? Yeah, yeah, acquisitive, yeah. Crimes. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, for theft crimes, uh, uh, there's definitely, uh, it appears, a, an economic uh, factor, and that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That's right. rational, right? When uh, you have more hard times, people are out of work, people can't afford goods, uh, there's more incentive to steal. So that makes sense. But violent crime is different, Matt, because violent crime is often motivated, usually motivated, by arguments, by anger, by impulsive anger, and and quarrels, and could be long-term or short-term quarrels. Mm. and And those things are kind of impervious to economic circumstances. That's why murder and assault... Show no correlation with uh, booms or or busts in the economy
3: does what then does drive up violent crime
8: good right that 's the question and and the answer is we know what happened in the sixties uh, and the question is whether it'll happen again so one factor demographics, you had this baby boom coming of age for crime for violence, meaning late early uh, late adolescence, early uh, manhood, and you had a huge increase in the numbers. And so when you get a big increase in the number of young people, especially young males, because males do most of the violent crime, this is a red flag. Second factor, you had the great migration of African Americans to northern cities in very high numbers, 800,000 from the South in the 1960s, one and a half million in the 1970s and unfortunately, poor african Americans had a and have still a, a culture that supports a great deal of violence when they 're interpersonal conflicts, they 're often resolved by violent means and we see this playing out in Chicago and Baltimore today mm. so the the migration, even though it was a wonderful thing it it advanced blacks from near serfdom in the South uh, to, to coming close to a, an economic and social par with whites. Uh, and, and, and it opened up education doors, and it paved the way to the civil rights movement. It was a great thing on balance, but there were negatives, too. And the negative was it did bring a lot of crime to the cities of the North, the Northeast, and the, and the central United States. So that was factor two. And the third big factor was when crime spiked, and it spiked really uh, uh, quite massively in the late 60s, early 70s, the criminal justice system caved. Police actually arrested fewer people, not more. Mm. And fewer people were sent to prison, not more. And the time they served in prison actually declined so the system sort of collapsed and when the system uh, weakened it couldn't handle all the crime and of course that became an incentive to more crime so the whole situation was a was a a vicious uh, cycle really so those three factors.
3: so baby boomers migration of uh, african americans to the the northern northeastern cities i guess yes and then uh the criminal system caving, caving. Are, are these um how are we set up for the future then i, I mean we we see all of the stories last year with Ferguson mm-hmm. and Baltimore. Mm-hmm. We hear the stories of young you know inner city youth that don't have jobs they can't find uh they can't find work um mm-hmm. at high numbers it, it's It seems like we might be and then we see the issues with Chicago. Are we setting ourselves up for a a violent future?
5: Right,
8: right. Exactly the question, Matt. In fact, I'm going to give a talk on this very issue in a couple of weeks. Exactly the question. So the demographics are favorable. The country is actually aging. There's no uh, baby boom uh, on the horizon. So uh, we could cross off that uh, factor. The criminal justice system is still strong. However there are a lot of pressures on the system to cut cut back as you well Mm -hmm. know the the mood of the country is the system is racist the system is unfair and the system's too expensive so it's time to get people out of prisons if we can it's time to monitor the police more it's time to cut back so if we do this in a smart way uh, then we're fine but if we're you know sort of blunderbuss about it, then we may be in trouble because if we weaken the system where it needs to be strong, we're going to have a problem because we know a weak criminal justice system is, is, is trouble for, for rising crime. Right,
3: especially with all of the other things that that could happen, uh, just with the the, uh, the greater numbers of youth that are suffering we'll take a break more with dr barry latzer in just a moment folks stick with us we are trying uh to understand the um, rise and fall of violent crime in america stick with us we'll continue the discussion in just a minute To the Matt Townsend show, you know, depending on where you live and uh, and the and the day you and age that we're measuring, violent crime has has been getting better in most of the United States, apparently. And um, you know, there's certain pockets, certain places, it's it's not uh, getting better. Chicago is an example. But there are conditions at play here. Um, the criminal system and the justice system is one of those things as well as, uh, just, you know, migration, movement. Another point that our guest uh, that we're talking with has made, um, and I wanted to bring it up with him. Uh, first of all, let me introduce our guest. Dr. Barry Latzer is joining us. He's a criminologist, has devoted his research to um, the the book he's written. He's an emeritus professor of criminal justice at John Jay College, and uh, his latest book is The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America. Uh, Dr. Barry Latzer, thanks so much for being with us today. You bet, Matt. One of the things I know um, you've mentioned, and I, and I read in some of your... Uh, material and work is this idea of um, there are cultures that are more apt or likely to be violent. And um, those cultures it's it's not just it's not just a racial thing because but there are certain cultures in the West, even in the South, in um, and and even uh, I guess with certain uh, different orga- or cultures that have moved and migrated, as you were talking about, mm-hmm. there's a culture of honor. Talk about culture of honor and mm-hmm. and how that impacts crime.
8: Well, this is very interesting and of course very controversial. But in fact, in generally in rural areas and agricultural areas, uh, it's developed that certain uh, groups of people and. Race is not the determining factor here, Uh, but when you have people who form a distinct culture, uh, they seem to develop a great sensitivity to insults, to slights. Uh, You can remember back reading uh, of the Hatfield and McCoy dispute in the 19th century, which was really a terrible thing, these two families having a feud ending by the way with one setting fire to the home of the other and and killing several people so this sensitivity to insult and to slights uh, uh, is a feature of these cultures and the most important part is a tendency to use violence to resolve the conflict, so you and I may have a quarrel, and you know being uh, uh, we 'd say reasonable people, middle class people, if we have a disagreement, a quarrel, we go to law, we hire lawyers we we sue each other, and we resolve it uh, at least in a nonviolent way, but uh, Two people who have a dispute who were, say, living in the South in the 19th century, and even in the first half of the 20th century, have a dispute, and they get their guns and start shooting. So it's a different way of handling interpersonal conflict, and it leads to a lot of violence and violent crime. And unfortunately, and this is another controversial matter, of course, um, uh, the ready availability of guns helps... Turn the violence into into lethal violence. Yeah. because it's just easier to kill someone with a gun than than with your bare hands or even with a knife.
3: And we, I guess, we see this. I mean, because I could see somebody saying, "Well, yeah, see, that's that's inner city gangs. That mm-hmm. that, but cult, this culture of honor could be an inner city gang kind of mentality, but it could also be uh, just." You know, it could be a a bunch of cowboys in the West that are protecting their land.
8: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Exactly. And in fact, it was mainly rural. And of course, it's notable that when African-Americans migrated, they came from the South. They came from largely rural areas. Uh, The Chicago migration was mainly from the Mississippi Delta, for instance. Uh, a farming uh, area, cotton farming area. So they came from this rural culture where whites, in fact, uh, uh, really were uh, vested in this culture of interpersonal violence. Mm. And, you know, my wife takes umbrage at this because she's from South Carolina. (laughs) But in a sense, (laughs) the blacks learned it from the southern
9: whites
8: to use violence to resolve conflict and of course I don't mean learned it in school I mean no. just through living in the area you you sort of soak up the the values and the ways of living of people in that area.
3: And we're trying to uh, those groups are trying to protect their their honor. It's it's yes. I I mean I'm fighting for I my mean, people.
8: Right. And you know that's sort of an old fashioned word and we right. don't talk about honor anymore but we would talk about dissing somebody, disrespecting somebody, fighting for respect. And and that would be the modern equivalent of of uh, the old fashioned word
3: honor. What do you think um, about and help us understand it, when it comes to violent crime? What's going on with the police? We we've seen more and more shootings. Um, is this is is do they have their own culture of honor? Mm-hmm. And is there or is there a training issue here? Mm-hmm. We, we know the majority of them are good, decent, wonderful people. But story after story after mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And again, in these cities that you're talking about, these kind of hotbed cities that yes. are dangerous anyway.
8: Yes. Actually, police shootings are uh, down. They're down dramatically. Uh, because of the crime uh, trough, that is because a violent right. crime was down, most of the po- most police never fire a weapon in their entire careers, never have to. So uh, we have to keep that in mind and and when they do fire, um, it's uh, uh, sometimes out of fear uh, and uh, inexperience, uh, and sometimes uh, they are in fact being uh, threatened, and it's their life versus the uh, the life of the threatening uh, party. Now we do have uh, cases where police uh, uh, abuse uh, abuse the badge, and those cases have to be handled, but on a case by case basis. Uh, I, that's why I don't accept the uh, the charge by the Black Lives Matter. Uh, people that this is a systematic racist uh... uh system uh... I, I don't think that's the case i don't think that's the problem the problem is you do have areas in big cities uh... oftentimes poor black areas that are very violent there are a lot of weapons around the police uh, are wary and in some instances maybe even uh, frightened and so that's when you get the uh, uh, shootings and the violence, uh, if you will, uh, uh, by uh, police. But as long as you have these high crime areas and as long as you have uh, uh, criminals with uh, a lot of weapons... I, I don't see a permanent uh, satisfactory solution to this uh, problem in other words it's it's going to recur
3: mm-hmm does um one of the one of the goals I guess of President Obama is... You know, criminal justice reform, Mm -hmm. uh, which you know would probably release many um, people that are in prison now on drug charges, and and lowering mandatory sentencing and things like that. Do you -hmm. you sense what what does that do to the future of uh, this? Because I know one of your issues is the criminal system. If when it caves, it creates problems. What happens when it's just restructured?
8: Right. Depends how, on, on how we do it. Uh, if we do it in a smart way, uh, where we'll be able to continue to lock up uh, dangerous uh, people, because we don't know what else to do, uh, really, with them, do we? We have to isolate dangerous people from uh, society for our protection. If we do it in a smart way, then we're fine. We can have some reforms. So, for instance, the concern with uh, putting uh, young uh, prisoners in uh, isolation within the prison for long uh, periods of time. Uh, That seems to me a legitimate concern, and some reforms along those lines need to be made. But uh, it's not going to be easy to reduce the prison population very much because uh, we know that well over half of the prisoners are in for violent crimes, and a fifth of them are in for very serious property crimes like like burglary, and only 16 percent are in for uh, drug crime, hmm. and and three quarters of the drug crime prisoners are in there for trafficking. So, how, who are you going to let out? Yeah, right. Uh, you got a problem here. Yeah. and and so uh, you know we can work around the margins maybe, but I don't see any big. Sweeping reductions in in imprisonment in in the United States. I I just don't see how that can happen. You know, here's an interesting anecdote. California was under court order to reduce the size of their prison population. So what did they do? They took 20% of the prisoners over several years, and they sent them to the jails in California. (laughs) Well, of course, the jails quickly got overcrowded. So you know what they did? They released people. They set people free because they didn't have the room for them either. Oh, wow. So then some of the towns and counties were complaining, hey, we got more street people now. We have more people doing some bad things on the streets of our towns and counties. Well, okay, but that was kind of foreseeable. But I guess they felt they had no choice in California. Uh,
3: It's it's still a system, right? I mean – and, and then a certain percentage of these people have mental health issues anyway. So there's a whole yeah. mental health side of this. Yeah. And we've talked to other people about how many years ago they, they used to have hospitals, mental health hospitals, and they yep. got rid of those and kind of yep. moved yep. them all into prison systems.
9: Yeah,
8: yeah, that's been a problem in this country. I can remember when I was uh, young. Of course, you did have mental health institutions, but there was a whole movement against it. I call it the, the cuckoo's nest movement because mm-hmm. it was this movie, One floor with the cuckoo's nest. You're too young, man. No, I remember it. I remember watching <laughs> it. And the whole And it really captured the whole mood of the country, which was these institutions were, you know, snake pits, they were yeah. expensive. They were ineffective. So what did they do? They closed them all up and moved everybody out. Some into halfway homes, but some just released to the streets.
3: And then they well, made their way to the prison system or the jails, yeah. and, and it was, yeah,
8: it was terrible. Homeless. Of course. They went off their meds because the meds are kind of potent and have side effects, and they went off their meds. And, of course, you had a lot of problems, in New York City uh, really felt a, a lot of this. Hmm. I can recall that, too. So, yeah, we need to rethink our, our, our mental
3: health institutions here as well. You know, Barry, we have about a minute. Um, what would you just tell the average Joe? What do the rest of us need to do? What could we? What can we do? To, um, to, to make sure our legislators are doing what they need to be doing, make sure that we, we have our head on straight about uh, violence in America.
8: Well, we need to get a a bit of more control uh, on the immigrant uh, situation. Uh, Right now, uh, ICE is freeing a lot of immigrant aliens who have committed crimes in the United States, and that's wrong. I just got data on that fascinating question, and I'm going to research that further. Mm. So we need to be careful about that. But. Really, in terms of policies, uh, I think uh, the police departments are moving towards, you know, really smart policing. And I think we have to be careful about our criminal justice reform so we don't throw the baby out with the bath. Yeah,
3: good. Great. Uh, great uh, ideas. In fact, we need to have you back, Barry, when you've researched the immigrant um, issue, because mm-hmm. we keep hearing more and more, you know, Donald made a Donald Trump made a huge and you know, probably I don't know push exaggerated. on. Exaggerated. Yeah, exaggerated I, concept <laughs> of uh, immigrants and the violent acts. But it yeah. might be interesting to have you tell us the truth. So yeah. as soon as you yeah. get that wrapped up, let us know and we'll have you back.
8: You bet. Matt, this was great. I loved
3: it. You too. Barry, Barry Latzer, thanks so much. And uh, go check out the book, folks, The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America. It's, uh, it's safer on average than it used to be, and yet, um, folks, it can also go away if we don't watch the trends. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting information from Dr. Barry Latzer. That, that whole idea of, you know, cultures of honor, that's that's a real deal. You can see it, the whole standoff with uh, those people up in Oregon that were trying to protect Western lands, um, culture, of, culture of honor. And it almost doesn't make sense. You know, boy, they're sure loyal. What, like... You're all going to go down together, um, but once once they're in it, the idea is we'll use violence to get out of this. If you know, however, this works, and it's in every culture, so don't ever just think it's something that only one ethnicity does, that one part of the country is involved in. It's it's everywhere, and uh, I think it's also easy for a lot of us to sit there and worry that our culture is falling apart or that our that crime is is taking over just because that's what the news is talking about, but folks, the news isn't it's not a it's not a great um it's not a great lens for what's really happening in America. It tends to be more of a magnifying lens right Crazy story out of upstate New York by the way, New York production company's recording of a man threatening people with a gun has sent people scurrying for cover at its office building. Police say office workers in the building reported hearing the voice in that voice in their building, um, you know, he's got a gun kind of thing. They hear the audio and everyone starts taking off. They're convinced that somebody on the floor has got a, a weapon. Police SWAT teams then quickly converged on the scene, surrounding the buildings. Buildings were evacuated. Traffic was blocked. Police searched the building and discovered one of the office suites housed a production company that was doing voiceovers and playing this recording of a man threatening people with a gun. Police say the production company staff had left the building just before police arrived. So you got to be careful here, by the way, because we are a public service organization, we want to help you. There are some other sounds that you need to make sure you don't ever play that you don't yell, that you don't ever uh, use. Here's, and we'll go in order.
8: The building is on fire.
3: (laughs) Don't ever come out saying the building is on fire. If the building is not on fire, don't say the building is on fire. Okay? There's a whole legal case around that one. Caution. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Okay, so that's an airplane. I've been on an airplane. Flying and the door was this was back in the day when they could leave. It was a tiny dual prop engine plane. The pilots had the doors open. I think I was flying to Flagstaff and I heard that sound come out of the cockpit terrain, terrain. And I'm like, what? Apparently, it was just a misfire. So, um, if you're a pilot, shut your door. Don't let the words terrain, terrain come out over the loudspeaker. It's a bomb. It's a bomb, probably not a sentence you want to use in a public setting, unless there really is a bomb. He's got a gun! And he's got a gun. Probably wouldn't be shouting that. Uh, If you shouted around the Secret Service, you might, you know, be taken out. So be careful. Uh, Just a little public service for you. We'll take a break, folks. That's our number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour. More information, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At
1: Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So good to have you with us. You having a good day? Hopefully you're just having a nice, relaxed day. I know we are. We uh, got a great topic coming up. Uh, Psychiatrists. They're really hard to find. I have a lot of clients that I'm trying to refer to a psychiatrist and we can't even find one. They're very, I think they just, they're very shy. That's it. I think what they are is they're overworked and probably underpaid and there's not enough of them. And so how on earth are we going to uh, to deal with the psychiatric issues of the country? If 20% of the population have mental health issues um, or illnesses every year, then guess what? We need psychiatrists, and there may be a new way, folks, technology. Why not, for heaven's sakes? Why not? We're going to be talking with resident physician in psychiatry at Stanford University Hospital Um, She'll be coming up. Nina Vassan will be joining us and talking about technology and psychiatry. Can we start using technology to improve the the care from psychologists? Interesting, interesting stuff coming up on that. Heaven knows we need that. Also, why not? If technology all of a sudden you can film a, a crime or a shooting of a police officer live if you're filming these things and even live streaming it and you can hear the little child in the back seat crying and 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 helping to soothe mommy then maybe you could use that exact same technology to help others heal and help people manage their mental health we will be getting to that topic in a few moments along with a lot of other headlines and other information some of it you even need and some of it just will hopefully will make you smile and then some you're just going to say these guys are crazy But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's going on around the rest of the country?
6: Well, it looks like Senators Bob Corker, and Joni Ernst withdrew their names from consideration to be Donald Trump's running mate. They said in separate interviews on Wednesday, in a sit-down with the Washington Post, Corker said he revealed the decision to Trump on Tuesday, the same day he met with Trump aides in New York and flew with him to a rally in North Carolina. Ernst, a freshman senator from Iowa, told Politico that while she wants to help Trump defeat Hillary Clinton, she wants to stay focused on her current job. Donald Trump raised a total of $51 million in the last five weeks through the end of June, far surpassing his dismal $3.1 million total from May. Trump brought in more than $226 million for his own campaign through donations from more than 400,000 supporters, 94% of whom gave in increments of $200 or less. For the other $25 million, the campaign teamed up with the Republican National Committee. Trump also gave the campaign $3.8 million out of his own pocket. President Obama departs for Europe on Thursday in what's likely his last presidential visit to the continent that's currently in turmoil over the Brexit vote. Obama will first head to Poland for the annual NATO summit in Warsaw, which will likely focus on Britain's vote to exit the European Union, recent terrorist incidences, the conflicts in Syria and Iraq and Russia's hostility. Obama also has plans to meet with top European leaders upon his arrival to underscore America's support for the European Union. Here's a reminder, at least 200 demonstrators gathered outside the Minnesota governor's residence early Thursday in the hours after a police officer fatally shot 32-year-old Fernando Castile while he was in a vehicle with his girlfriend and her small child. His girlfriend, Lavish Reynolds, broadcast the immediate aftermath of the shooting on Facebook Live, a graphic video that has made headlines around the world. And lastly, Matt, the Olympics have partnered with an insect repellent for the first time ever. More than 100,000 bottles of Off, a repellent widely used in Brazil, will be given to athletes, volunteers, and staff during next month's Olympics in Rio. (laughs) S.C. Johnson, maker of OFF, is also stepping up production to make sure its repellent is available for purchase around the city. The OFF factory in Brazil has tripled shifts in recent months. We're working 24-7, and an S.C. Johnson executive says. So there you have it. Wow. We're, pr- we're protecting against the Zika virus for the Olympics. Welcome to Brazil. So it's still safe.
3: Yeah. It's all safe now because so you've got your go. OFF. Right. Let's go. Welcome to Brazil. Now, don't go near the water. <laughs> Why? Because the repellent will... It'll be uh, it'll be washed off if I go in the water. Actually, no, because there's microorganisms in the water that will actually eat your skin. It's also a revenue opportunity for off. Can you imagine? Uh, so how much is the can of off? It's twelve hundred bucks. <laughs> Price just went up. <laughs> Do you know how much Zika will cost your family?
9: Oh my word!
3: <laughs> this is so dangerous. Yeah, I
4: saw that, and I'm like, okay, you could you couch this marketing-wise, right? Yeah, you're helping, right? You're you're being a uh, a, a thoughtful producer of a product people need. Exactly. When they need it. And you
3: make a lot of money because of revenue. S.E. Johnson. They're no dummies. Can you imagine the black market for mosquito (laughs) spray? It's like in London or New York. The minute it starts raining, all the fake Rolex watches go away Mm -hmm. and umbrellas come out. And they're $12 for an umbrella. It's very affordable.
4: Any any grocery store in town you go by, if it's going to rain that day, whatever city you're in. Yeah. They
3: have a little stand. There's they just roll
4: out. It's over by the ice machine. They roll it out, and here's all the umbrellas. Here it is.
3: Yeah, I bought a new umbrella for, I think it was $12 back in the day in New York. It was so cool. Opened it up, pushed the button, <laughs> and the umbrella cover or the umbrella part flew off, mm. and I was holding the handle. Nice. It was also a projectile. <laughs> so I didn't even know. It was like a gun and
4: I only saw that umbrella. on the, like the 60s Batman when Penguin would jump out and... Yeah, fire so remember, an umbrella.
3: Oh, that was those were the no lot No, those were horrible. But you just went all nerdy on us. Hey, while you're on the topic, mm. I did find a story that I thought of you. Oh, okay. We probably won't have invis- invisibility cloaks oh. soon. But they said, yeah, no. It's it's there. No, because here's the deal. A new study reveals that there's a fundamental limit to the efficacy of cloaking devices mm. like invisibility cloaks. Okay. You know, it's physics. So despite modern technology, it's not possible to hide objects containing different wavelengths, objects like human bodies. Mm. Because you – I don't know if you know this, but you have different wavelengths. Apparently. I mean I thought for sure you'd know that.
4: It's kind of depressing.
3: I always wanted to be invisible. So you can't have an invisibility cloak because humans, we just emit too many different wavelengths.
4: I don't think that's true. I've, well, I've seen on TV where people have those cloaks. Or like on Star Trek, they they yeah. had cloaking devices. The Romulans, they had, they were able to cloak. Oh, Alert word. nerd. They're birds of prey. But the Federation had a treaty <laughs> with the Romulans, so they couldn't have this technology. And there were a couple occasions where they trust the just Federation. into some secret. The Federation of Planets. That's what it's called.
3: I don't want to be negative, but you are such a nerd. I said invisibility cloak. I think I said it twice. I just went to like. And look where you went. You went all the way to the Federation. Sorry. That was easy. You opened the door just a little bit. I know. You give a man, you give a man a little nerdy inch and he takes a nerdy mile. And again, I mean, no offense to the nerds out there. This but is
4: actually quite depressing news. There, we
3: need yeah, no, the ability to it's, it's not going to happen for a very, very, very long time until science changes as we know it. Then you just change science. Yeah. I've got, I've got good news, though, mm. for some of you. And anybody that ever watched uh, any TV in the 70s or 80s, probably mm-hmm. 80s. Early 80s. Early, early 80s. Yeah. Uh, you'll probably recognize this song. Hey. Mm. This is the coolest show <laughs> it ever. You didn't even get the good part. I wanted to be, I know, well, I wanted to be this next guy, Eric Estrada. I wanted to be Officer Frank Poncharello. Because if you can't be Ponch, you didn't want to be John. John was a great guy, just bread and butter kind of guy. But Ponch was the one the ladies liked. Well, Officer Frank Poncharello from the 70s and 80s TV series Chips, was sworn in as a reserve officer in St. Anthony, Idaho, over the weekend. The 67-year-old TV star shared the news on Twitter, but he's a full-fledged, he's a reservist, but when you look at him, he's wearing the blues, he's got a gun, he's got a holster, he's looking sharp. And they have a picture of him in front of a motorcycle, a motorcycle. Here we go. This is, this is the music that they're on. They're 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 chasing someone down. Yeah, this is the high speed chase. I needed the open.
5: Sorry, I've never seen. This yeah, show. No, it's, it's an
4: awesome show. You haven't show. seen this
3: show? No, I hmm. haven't. Welcome to heaven.
5: You, I was in heaven
4: when you, it came out. You didn't out, see the so. movie Planes, Fire and Rescue, where they make fun of the show.
3: No, that's cool. Why would they make fun of the show? No. They just. Because right there, it. see that upswing, that crescendo, yeah, means they're now hauling. They're going to get it. Right, they're getting. They're him. chasing that offender. Oh, and they're just weaving in and out of traffic. You can tell. <sighs> what, what one That's fact good on TV the show? Right there, yeah.
4: Every time there was a car accident, car exploded. Well, of course. And then you had the the police officer run over, save the person, and as they yeah. as they went away, they dive as the car explodes because the, the concussive you, force. Well, did
3: you ever hear of a Pinto? Yeah. Every time a Pinto stopped, it exploded. <laughs> they always had Buicks flying off yeah, cliffs in that show. Those so. were good days. Oh, an amazing thing about chips is they really covered the whole state because they were, they were all, I mean, not the whole state, but the whole, sometimes they'd be on like Mulholland Drive. Okay. Which they might not normally be on if they're on, if they're in San Bernardino, wherever. Right. So, but they'd cover, I mean, they were everywhere. It's almost like there were only two of them.
4: No, because there was seven, Mary three and four. <laughs> there was, uh, uh, I used to know all the call signs.
3: We will post the picture of, uh, P- uh Fra- officer Frank Ponciarello. We'll, we'll post it on, so on he, Twitter. So
4: he's an actual police officer. He's a
3: now. cop now. He's a cop. And he looks honestly for 67. The guy, re- the guy reminds me of myself.
4: Is he all gray and no, no dark hair. You still got the biceps and the tight shirt. Yeah. He always wore the tight shirt. He's
3: fit as a fiddle. And he's packing heat. Like I didn't think they'd let a reserve officer carry a gun. Apparently they do. It's Idaho too. Some you know, there's some bad dudes in Idaho. Well, yeah.
4: <laughs> more of the northern part.
3: Yeah. Crazy Bill. Anyway, that's good news for that's good news for everybody that's keeping score. Chips is real. Frank Poncharello. Except it's
4: more like potato chips now.
3: It's Idaho. Yeah. Don't mess with the word chips. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I know uh, your favorite contest was taken place uh, had taken place over the weekend uh, What's that? at Acme Oyster House. Okay, there was there's now a new oyster eating champ. Oh, this grossed me out. He ate 44 dozen oysters. And there you go. That's what it sounds there's like. There's one. <laughs> so gross. There's one.
4: Here's I, a gray, slimy ball of nothing. It Yum! Was,
3: but this was this was a hard competition. Head-to-head head at the World Oyster Eating Championship in Woldenburg Park at the Oyster Festival. For the past 10 years, competitor eater, competitive eater Sonia, the Black Widow, Thomas. She has been the winner. Except this year, eight, eight contestants competed, eating as many as uh, dozens of oysters and... As um, they'd eat as many as they could, dozen at a time. In a- oh, there's two. That's gross. At the end of the eight minutes, the two contestants were neck and neck. Showing you the Black Widow, Thomas, and Adrian the Rabbit, Morgan. <laughs> there's three. The rabbit. You know, by the way. So, who's going to be more likely to eat a lot of oysters? A Black Widow or the Rabbit? Mm. Obviously, the Rabbit. And guess what happened? By the way, Morgan's from Baton Rouge. That's important because he, he probably just is down there in the bayou. Just You're trying to say it's a cultural food. Yeah. Was, oh, boy. Yeah. The Both contestants ate 42 dozen oysters. Oh. So they had to go into an overtime round. And in the overtime round, there's four. Uh, in the overtime round, Adrian won it. Adrian the Rabbit Morgan, he took it. And these were his comments. I feel full. (laughs) I feel good, though. (laughs) I've never eaten that many oysters in my life. That's over 500 oysters. So gross. There's five. That's definitely more than I've ever eaten. Um, And then his last comment was, where's the restroom? I don't feel well.
4: There's usually a time limit after you finish these competitions that you yeah. have to keep the food down. Yeah.
3: Then you can go take care of it. 500 <laughs> oysters. The funny thing is, so what would 500 oysters weigh? Like a pound? I don't know. But the, the the oysters themselves probably would only weigh a pound, maybe more two pounds, five pounds. But the Flemish yucky film around the oyster, yeah. that's easily three or four more pounds. Gross. It's uh, – it's a good one. There's five.
9: That was
5: six, I think.
3: Was it yeah. six? By the way, the only way you can, I can eat an oyster is if you put enough lemon and then sauce, cocktail sauce on it, and dip it in ranch, and then fry it. Mm, that's an oyster. That's Seven. There's a lot of contests that I think are kind of out there. That is one that I'm pretty sure, no matter what, not every one of those oysters were healthy.
5: Oh, no. Oh, no.
3: There's got to be a couple in there.
5: I'm pretty sure like
3: one in every 10 is unhealthy. Yeah. Have so. you ever had oyster oyster ice cream? No, I haven't. Fantastic. Really? Try it. Put that on your list. Flavors you must have. Noted. Noted. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, we will be speaking with uh, Dr. Nina Vassan, who will be talking to us about psychiatry and the Innovation Lab, how they're trying to use technology now to help psychiatrists and their patients to live healthier lives. Stick with us, folks. That's the goal of the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, advancements in communication and technology have infa- enhanced many parts of our lives. By the way, in some of them, they may also actually be uh, causing problems for us. Um, we can communicate with loved ones who are far away and be up to date on the latest news. Some of us might be watching too much news or becoming too obsessed with things that uh, we are, you know, on our Twitter feed. We can't, we have to comment, right? Right. But do these innovations and uh, all these wonderful new devices and, and innovations in technology, how, do they actually affect our health care in a positive way? Joining me today is the founder of the Psychiatry Innovation Lab, an event that looks at needs in the psychiatric care world and... and uh, and really is trying to generate new suggestions and uses of technology, apps or tools to help solve some of those psychiatric issues. Dr. Nina Vassan joins us. She is a resident in psychiatry at Stanford University. And Dr. Vassan, we, we welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here with us today.
7: Hi, Matt. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me.
3: This, to me, is a huge deal. We go, if I break an arm, I go into the hospital, they x-ray my arm, they kind of know what's going on with me. But if I have anxiety or depression, if I'm bipolar, they don't usually end up X-raying anything or really using too much technology on me, do they?
7: You're, You're exactly right, Matt. Unlike a lot of conditions in medicine, such as diabetes or heart disease, we don't have a blood test or an image or anything like that that we can do that will easily tell us, are you depressed? Do you have bipolar disorder? Um, And not only do we not have those easy tests to diagnose, we also don't have those tests to tell us how severe something is. Mm. So for example, if you think of the anxiety you might have before a first date or before an exam, compared to paralyzing anxiety that's preventing you from taking care of your family or going to work, um, those are very different and need different types of treatment, but back to your point, it can't be diagnosed as quickly and effectively as a blood test or uh, or X-ray.
3: Right. In fact, my when I was getting my doctorate, my father-in-law said, because he's a cardiologist, and you know he can just put people, give them a stress test, have them run on the treadmill, and he's like, you know, by the end of that test, I know a lot. I know pretty much what I need to do, along with some blood work. And he's like, what you need to create, Matt, is a test for people that are having marriage issues. And they just put them on this thing, and then all of a sudden, at the very end, you know all the numbers. And I'm like, yeah. well, yeah. Except the difference is with our mind, I just the very test itself can alter how I'm handling anxiety or my mood or my situation or my marriage. People are complicated, but you you may have found a way, Nina, to motivate uh, all of these innovative, you know technology-driven wizards to create tools for psychiatry. Talk about your innovation lab, what you're doing there.
7: Sure, I'd love to. And let me, let me actually take one little step back, which is while we don't have you know, the labs or the x-rays, we do have good diagnostic tests to know if someone is depressed or anxious. And what that is is basically asking them questions. We know a collection of symptoms that relate to depression or anxiety or marriage difficulties. And when I have a patient in my office in front of me, I have a series of questions that I know to ask them. And based on their answers to that question, yes, no, every day, once a week, I have a good sense of what's going on with them. Um, And so what Technology now now why, that's great because what it shows is that we do actually have the, the psychiatry as a field does have the capability to diagnose yeah. disease, but what happens is that that takes up a lot of time, right? If you imagine from a systems or community perspective if they're not that many, and there is a shortage of mental health providers in the world and in, in, in all communities. So if you're reliant on being in a doctor's office for half an hour or one hour to even get a diagnosis versus, you know, a, with a blood test, 20 people can go in and have their results just a few minutes later, um, it really limits the ability for a lot of people to get access to care. And that's exactly where technology holds a lot of promise. Um, so So to get to your question about the innovation lab, so the whole idea here is that we need to completely change the way that mental health care is being delivered. We know that mental health care is an absolutely huge issue. The World Health Organization estimates that by 2030, Mental health is going to be the number one leading cause of burden of disease in in the world. In the U.S. alone, over the course of our lifetime, almost 50% of us are going to meet criteria for a diagnosable mental health condition, 50%. Wow. And, you know, that's that's really enormous. Um, And what's interesting is that, you know, when you think of how does this affect us, it means that we're not performing well at work. We're not able to take care of our kids well. And that ends up really um, having a lot of after effects. It affects the children. It affects families. It affects communities. So we know that there's a real need for change in mental health care. And the way we're doing things now is just not working. It's not working at um, preventing disease. It's not working at getting access to all the people who need care. And while we do have good treatments out there, um, there's still the need for improvements in our treatment such that people are able to stick with it and continue to get better.
3: And, and technology is and so, so, so uh, useful, too, because it's, it's there with you and it's you know exactly. what i mean so it could be gathering data or helping you process or helping you collect the information to make a better diagnosis
7: absolutely and that's what's so interesting about you're you're right what do we have with us every moment of the day your your smartphone or you know something like that is is pretty much you know more a part of your life than your best friend or even your spouse or or child And so that's where the the whole idea of innovation comes in. So the Innovation Lab um, is an event that we started uh, in April of this, uh, sorry, in May of this year, where we put out a call to action. What are the mental health problems that you think you can fix? And how can you use, how can you think about technology and systems in a new way that will let us make an impact in these problems? Um, so exa- exactly the thing that you talked about was is a very common thing that we're trying to figure out. How can we use technology to collect data that will help us diagnose a disease early? Or for example, let's say someone's being diagnosed, but they're not doing really well. They maybe started a medication or started a therapy and they're not responding well. Instead of waiting for them to get worse or wait a month or two months for them to come back and see their doctor, what if we can use technology and know in real time, know like a few days later that it's not working well?
3: Mm. Yeah. Honestly, I know so many people that need – because then, then they – sometimes they have to wait to get back in, right? Or the doctor's just not available.
7: Right, yes. Yeah. Um, And and even if, and you're you're exactly right, and, you know, from this area of diagnosing people, people who don't even necessarily recognize that they need help or they know they need it but don't know where to go from there, apps can help with that all the way through treatment. Um, So, for example, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a type of talk therapy that has a lot of evidence for helping with depression, anxiety, social anxiety, um, a lot of issues like that. And it's this structured uh, therapy that gives you a lot of tools in terms of helping you think through your own problems throughout the day and correct them in real time. That's a therapy that can be done in person. For example, I do cognitive behavioral therapy with a lot of my patients. But it's also something where it can be computerized. Hmm. And we have evidence that shows that computerized cognitive behavioral therapy, that is like an app or a website that engages people, um, you know, through their phone actually works just as well as it does when you have someone in front of you for mild for mild conditions. Um, so, you know, that just shows, wait, if we can get this out to everyone, um, you know, it's low cost. It's easy. It's simple to access. You don't have to take time off of school or work. You can do it in the comfort of your home. Um, And so not only can things like that be used to help people once they have problems, what I think is actually even um, more exciting is the room for prevention. So how can we give people the skills and tools that will prevent them from even getting depressed or anxious in the first place, like thinking about working with kids in high school or – Young adults, um, or even the elderly, before they um, before they get signs of various mental
3: illness. Oh yeah, and start to coach them on you know healthy practices, m- you know meditation practices, better diet management, all these other kind of preventative tools.
7: Absolutely, you know there are a few things that every single patient who comes into my office that I recommend to them, and. That's, that's it's all these wellness sort yeah. of areas. And I actually will write prescriptions for people, which include, you know, do mindfulness for 10 minutes a day, exercise for 30 minutes, take a walk outside, you know, meet up with a friend a few days a week. All those sorts of things help enormously. Oh, I love that.
3: And I, I see, too, that um, a lot of us aren't as self-aware um, about what's going on in our lives and our world. How powerful when all of a sudden you could tie maybe a psychiatric event to your schedule, to your day planner, to your – to what you were doing that day in that moment and all of a sudden you might see patterns and habits and – other, I mean, there's, there's kind of no end to it. Uh, Dr. Nina Vassan, let's take a break. I want to come back and hear about what are some of the things that you're seeing, some of the innovations that are coming out of, uh, this, this interesting program, um, the psychiatry innovation lab. We'll, we'll be right back, folks, continuing to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about uh, psychiatry and the new drive to to introduce technology as a tool to help in prevention, in diagnostic, and just in application of, of certain forms of therapy and and even just certain you know wellness. Um, behaviors and and habits. Joining us is Dr. Nina Vasan, who is a resident physician in psychiatry at Stanford University and co-author of the number 1 Amazon best-selling book Do Good Well: Your Guide to Leadership, Action and Innovation. She's also the founder of the Psychiatry Innovation Lab. Dr. Nina Vasan, thanks again for being with us. For having me. So you the, what the what this is, the Psychiatry Innovation Lab, you've put together basically a call for uh, technology-based solutions. It's a it's a it's a contest in a way where money's going to be given to the winner, and they want you want as many submissions as you can get. Is that the idea?
7: That's exactly the idea. Yes.
3: And then teach us. So so what what's what's going on? I think your deadlines were just uh, they just passed, didn't they?
7: Yeah, so we had our first event in May, and I'd, I'll, I'd love to tell you about um, what happened there. Um, I also want your viewers to know that our next event is going to be in Washington, D.C. on October 8th. And uh, so there's going to be another round. We're going to be opening up applications probably within the next month. Cool. So if they go to our website, which is psychiatryinnovation.com, they'll be able to learn more when we announce the next the next round of the contest. Um, but to go back to what the contest uh, basically is, is, yeah, so we found a sponsor of uh, this telemedicine company called Doctor on Demand that gave $2,500 for a grand prize. And Doctor on Demand is a great example of how they're using technology. So through the iPhone or iPad, what this company is doing is they're connecting people with doctors so that you don't have to... You know drive an hour to find a doctor or maybe you know and i'm I'm from west virginia i know there are areas in west virginia where to see a doctor you might even have to drive three four hours just for a short appointment right but you can actually do it in the convenience of your home and so so uh, doctor on demand sponsored this for the um, american psychiatric association and we invited people to submit ideas on how they wanted to change the future of mental health care Over the course of the event, what happened was, um, based on some of the do-good-well principles in my book, I worked with the finalists on how to improve their idea. That is, you know, they had these great ideas. How do we think about it from a business perspective, from a medical perspective, from an administration perspective, and how can we create a product or service that's going to not only make an impact for um, you know, diagnosis, but also for, be easy to use for the patients, yeah. for example. Um, and and then at the event, they presented their idea, um, like in, they gave a pitch, sort of like Shark Tank on TV. Yeah. And we had a we had a panel of judges, um, all experts in different areas, who who much like on Shark Tank, gave feedback, thinking, oh, for example, I you know run a department in a hospital. Here's what I think about this, or I um, work in venture capital. Here's what I think about this. And then what happened is that we had this very diverse group of people in the audience who. Were um, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nonprofit administrators, business people, patients themselves, families of patients, who all came together and worked as a team with the finalists to improve their idea. Hmm. So, re- you know, really thinking about collaboratively how can these ideas get better using multiple perspectives. Um, and then they gave final pitches at the end, and a winner was chosen. And I'd love to tell you about yeah. the winner.
3: So, how many and submissions it- were there?
7: There were 35 submissions, okay. and we narrowed it down to seven finalists. Wow! So about one in five, one in seven or one in five like what, uh, became became a finalist. What
3: were some of the ideas in some of those final seven?
7: Yeah, um, well, the one that won, um, I think really cap- it captures a lot of what we've been talking about today. It's called NeuroLex Diagnostics, and it was built by this engineer named Jim Schwobel out of um, out of Atlanta. And the whole idea of what Jim was trying to do is this question of how can we detect psychosis early? So psychosis is basically what happens when people have schizophrenia or sometimes people who are depressed or have bipolar disorder can also be, have what we call psychosis. And psychosis is um, when people, um, for example, they might have hallucinations, like they see things that you know, the rest of us can't see or they hear voices that other people can't hear. Um, If you imagine like the movie A Beautiful Mind, for example, um, uh, there's a lot of paranoia, for example, thinking like the government is after me Mm. or looking at the TV and thinking that you're getting special messages. Um, Those are some of the things that really are hallmarks of psychosis. And what's really interesting about psychosis is that it manifests over a long time. So it's not that just like one day you're really, really psychotic, but rather it starts off small and then gradually gets worse. And because of all these things we've talked about, access to care and and difficulty in diagnosis, people often don't get diagnosed until it's really late. And so what Jim was trying to figure out is, okay, people, you know, including – people have their smartphones with them. What if we could use something with the smartphone to create an app that would diagnose psychosis early? Hmm. So what he did was he created this app that uses voice recognition and modulation. So for example, it uses the syntax and semantics in what we're saying. So even like the conversation that you and I are having right now, Matt, yeah. it could record it records that conversation and by using different things, for example, the words that the word choice that we use or the way that we construct phrases in, you know, in English, it can actually use that to detect psychosis. Wow. So basically, exactly your point of like, why can't I, you know, have a blood test or get an x-ray, this is actually able to give you a diagnostic and it prints out this paper that can tell you if you're having psychosis or not.
3: Holy cow, that's powerful. And that can be used in the emergency room, I guess it could be used, uh, you know, if somebody has suffered this in the past, I guess they could use it as well.
7: Exactly. And it could be used even in, you know, even in the Comfort of your home. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know we we know that certain people are more likely to have it. Um, you know, you, before you even have the fir- have it for the first time, we might be able to diagnose it early. And why that's so important, Matt, is that the earlier we know that, the earlier we diagnose, and the earlier we treat, um, the better outcomes people have. Yeah. So if you think of schizophrenia, you know there are pe- like if you think of there are people who are homeless on the street, talking to themselves, and unable to take care of themselves. And that really shows a a failure in the system in some ways of people who weren't able to get the help that they needed um, for a number of reasons. Um, But we also have people who have schizophrenia who are able to hold down jobs and have families and raise children and really live good quality lives. And, you know, the Early diagnosis could mean the difference. From, it could really mean that difference right there. You bet,
3: wow! And again, that's just one idea. You had thirty-five there. Uh, let's say you know ten or six or seven of them eventually take off. This, this is this is a this is a big big game changer, right? This is going to make it more affordable, make it more accessible to people, and really, I guess there's no end. We just need as many ideas as you can get out there.
7: You know, we. I think there's immense hope in this, and the stage. You're you're absolutely right. The stage that we're at now. A lot of these ideas are getting thrown out there, and we're developing it. That said, you know, if you think of something like the medication that you get, the antibiotic that you get when you when you have an infection, um, those. The sorts of things were tested, um, and we had clinical trials and a lot of scientific evidence to show that they work. That's That's sort of the next stage that a lot of these ideas are in. So we need great ideas. In addition to getting great ideas out there, we also need to make sure that we are measuring them properly and collecting the data to show that they work well. Um, once we do that, we can feel confident that we are giving patients and really we're giving the whole community these tools that they can use to get treated early, yeah. you know, get diagnosed, get diagnosed, and really that we can improve all these statistics about how much mental health is, is hurting our our country.
3: And then eventually the legislators will get involved and we'll have to deal with legal rights to use This diagnostic tool on me when I'm not even psychotic and you keep saying I'm psychotic because you recorded me. Um
7: that's ab- that's absolutely right? true, for example, if you think of a breathalyzer, right, police will give you a breathalyzer yeah. and say if for people who who um might have been drinking, and we know we know that there's again evidence that that works what if someone what if you go for a job interview and your um your your boss or your potential boss records your conversation to try to see could this guy be psychotic
3: Oh boy. Oh yeah, okay. This is so yeah. This is going to be
7: really interesting ethical issues. In exactly.
3: Place. Oh, and then all of a sudden, wait till NSA gets this and the CIA and that's, hold. That's
7: absolutely right. <laughs> yes.
3: Oh, uh, Nina, this is great stuff, and I think it's. I think you're on the cutting edge, just as a practitioner um, of, of more of kind of an education program. I found there's there's need. There's a major need for more psychiatric help and tools. So keep up the great work there at uh, uh, psychiatryinnovation.com and that's where everyone should go right if they want to be involved in the october 8th event absolutely okay nina thank you so much keep up keep it up we'll take a break folks there's hope stuff's happening just slow right slow and steady wins the race we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you know, the English language seems like an easy language, right? But there, every once in a while, there's just a, a word that you find very difficult to pronounce. So we sent out a pro. Leanna Tan, one of our producers, hit the ground, and uh, she went out asking innocent bystanders to uh, make an attempt to pronounce a word that many think is the hardest word in the English language. Listen up. Yak yeah, yeah, mouth, young one's yours.
10: You probably couldn't tell, but those were all English words. There's an estimated 1,025,109.8 words in the English language, and some of them can be pretty difficult to say. As you all know, I do voicing on the radio, so that means that one of my best friends is the dictionary, which I reference a lot to make sure that I get the right pronunciations. One time I was looking up the pronunciation of a word on MSaying.com, and there was a little pop-up that came up and said, hardest word to say in the English language. So, of course, I was curious and I clicked on it. And I have to say, I was definitely surprised at the answer. It's not something you hear a lot and I had to agree, it's pretty difficult to say. I decided I had to share it with you guys. So, I thought I'd go out and find some people to put to the test and see if they could figure out the most difficult word to say in the English language. And I'd say. Perhaps even in the world. What's your name? Mark Burns. Nancy Warner. Brooke Charlie. Joey Kylie. Payton. And how old are you? 13. 11. 8. 6. I'm 5. And what's your name? I'm Tristan. Y E R I am tristan Y-E-R-I-M.
2: Johnny Loaisan. I'm Tony Hun. Where are you from? France. I'm from Korean. Yes.
10: South Korea.
2: I'm from Ecuador.
10: I went online and I found the most difficult word to say in English. What do you think that word could be? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious.
5: Ichthyothoros.
2: Darth Vader.
10: Magnificent. Verb plus easy or the visit visit and then visited. Yeah, yes. It's hard to say past tense words.
2: Can it be like a believe word? Sure. Trago Humper. (laughs) Whoa! How do you say? I don't know. Whirlpool. Wait, Kyla, how do you say whirlpool? Whirlpool?
10: Whirlpool? Yeah, that. Kindergarten. Kindergarten?
2: Anthropology.
10: Anthropology? Yeah.
2: I'll go for squirrel.
5: Is it the one? (laughs) Squirrel? (laughs) Squirrel is pretty hard, yeah. I've like practiced for
2: hours to get that one straight.
10: (laughs) I have the answer in my pocket. Here it is. Can you say this?
2: What? <laughs> oh. oh, that's good.
5: That feels so dumb right now. You're right. That is the hardest word to say. Can
10: you pronounce that?
5: Sorry. Oh. Sorry. 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 Sorry.
10: Do you know what sorry means? An apology. Yes. Why do you think that that's the hardest word to say?
9: (laughs) Because
2: pride and stuff. Maybe it's because just pride and don't want to admit or recognize their own mistakes.
10: Sometimes we're so stubborn. Sometimes you don't want to because you always think you're right. You don't want to admit because you're wrong. Has it ever been hard for you to say? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: But I think that foreign yeah. people use that word a lot because they have so many mistakes. <laughs>
10: <Yeah>. <laughs> How do you feel after you say sorry? Good. I feel good. Happy.
1: I just feel good.
10: I feel really
1: I feel much better usually.
10: I feel a lot better. How do you think the world would change if people were able to say this more?
2: Oh, it would change a lot. I think that we didn't have so many words and I think that more people would be happier.
1: It would be a much better place with much better feelings between people, I think. Fewer grudges fewer hard feelings, fewer people losing sleep at night.
10: It's true. How many people have you not seen in a while because of disagreements? How many countries are fighting because they feel they have been wronged? Do you think a five-letter word could patch families and even countries? Maybe it can, because it's not about the word itself, but what it means. Dictionary.com defines sorry as a feeling of regret or sympathy. It says that it's a feeling. Diane Barth, a writer for psychologytoday.com, says that the reason it's so hard to give and accept some apologies is because our sense of who we are and how we are is reinforced through our relationships with the important people in our lives. Apologies and forgiveness are cycled through relational interactions that either reinforce or disrupt our sense of security, trust in others, and feelings of self-worth. We fear that acknowledging someone else's accurate criticism and taking responsibility for our behavior can reinforce a painful, negative self-image. So, Sorry might be the hardest word to say because it takes effort to get to the point where we feel that regret and to validate that someone else is hurting. But it's interesting that the dictionary says the antonym to sorry is happy. Every minute that you're angry or upset, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. That simple five-letter word could be your bridge to happiness. And remember, apologizing doesn't always mean you're wrong and the other person is right. It means that you value your country, your relationship, your marriage, or your family. More than your ego. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent.
0: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side. Follow
0: Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr.
0: Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend.
3: Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tell the Truth Day. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Today's the day. Imagine a world where nobody lies, saying anything misleading. Nobody's dishonest. Everybody's up and honest and upfront about their beliefs. Even if you call him a racist, he's not going to lie. He was truthful. Yeah. Tell the truth day. We tell our political leaders. Tell the truth day. Hmm. On tell the truth day. It's also strawberry Sunday day. An angel just got it's Sunday. Hmm. And global forgiveness day. Yeah. Hmm. Adele. This is, by the way, from the personal uh, library? library of okay. Ben Wasden. Yeah. He's oh, got yeah. eight different versions of Adele's. A couple remixes. Yeah.
5: So four like covers by men, one yeah. original by Adele, and then three covers by women. Yeah. Just so you get
3: like the full range. A lot of data on that s- song that we didn't need to know. <laughs> but I forgive you because you told the truth. That's right. See, those are two days combined in one day.
5: I'm just trying to get with the...
4: He has a ska version. Yeah, has he? Big brass band in the back. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah. Heavy That's, metal. That Ben, yeah, that says Ben all over it. You know what says more of Ben is just it's Sunday day. Strawberry Sundays. Yeah.
4: Why do we celebrate random desserts?
3: Well, what else would we celebrate?
4: You could just...
3: We could do a call vegetable
4: it, of the day. Just call it
3: Thursday. No, see, no. See, now the no. pessimist is coming out of you. <laughs> we, uh, we got a great show for you coming up. We're going to be talking with uh, Tracy Gleason about the importance of make believe. You know, with all of the issues we've had with Ben around the show, mm-hmm. playing make believe, all of his you know, imaginary friends, we started thinking maybe this is healthy for kids at a certain level.
5: Today is the day you can apologize to me for telling me that it's
3: bad. And we're finding out that for children, it's incredibly – maybe it's it's helpful to have – to be able to be in make-believe land.
4: Children. And but, for some young adults. Where would you say that that would top out where it starts being Well, I'm going to ask the expert a, because issue.
3: there comes a point where you just got to live in the real world. Okay. Right? And you can't just wear your underoos to work. That's what security said. <laughs> I'm just quoting security. That was the email we got. That was the email we got, and then I had to get him out of jail. So we will get to that uh, in just a few moments. But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin, what's up?
6: Thanks, Matt. House Speaker Paul Ryan sent a letter to Director of National Intelligence James Clapper Wednesday requesting he deny... Any classified information go to Hillary Clinton for the rest of the 2016 campaign. After FBI Director James Comey called Clinton's ha- handling classified material, quote, extremely careless, Ryan argued in an interview on Fox on Tuesday that the Democratic nominee shouldn't be permitted to get top-secret briefings, but the letter formalizes that recommendation. The Speaker's push comes as Comey is slated to testify Thursday morning before the House Oversight Committee. Donald Trump is meeting with more than 200 House Republicans Thursday as he seeks to unite the party at a time when his campaign is again clouded by controversy. The meeting offers the presumptive Republican nominee an opportunity to reassure nervous members of the party who worry that his willing style on display um, Wednesday during a speech in Cincinnati may turn off voters. Two people are dead after a fiery helicopter crash near Italy Wednesday, Ellis County emergency management officials said. An experimental twin-engine Bell Helicopter 525 Relentless with two people aboard crashed at about 11.45 a.m. while performing flight test operations. Bell Helicopter said the names of those killed in the crash have not been released, but they are both helicopter employees. The company called this a very tragic day. The the helicopter was still in the testing phase and used a new kind of rotor system. Investigators will likely be looking into whether there was a problem with that system. And here's the last update for the day, Matt. 24-year-old Brad Scott Beard and 21-year-old Samantha Brooke um, Canipe were arrested early Monday and charged in North Carolina with misdemeanor assault after they apparently declared their independence from civility and started attacking each other with pizza rolls in the apartment that they share. Details haven't been divulged on motive, method of attack, or pizza roll brand. Both suspects are being held on bond and could face up to 60 days in jail. What a waste of
3: pizza rolls. A pizza roll duel, like a fight. Man, that is a waste of a very, very good food. (sighs) You don't waste pizza rolls, boys. This isn't a frat house. Well done, Caitlin. Thank you so much for the news. Um, Man, we've got so much to talk about. And of course, we'll be speaking with our guest, Tracy Gleason, about the importance of your kids playing. I don't think kids use their imagination like they used to. They don't need to because – Everything's kind of handed to him on a plate. Back in the day, all you had was a stick. And that stick became your best friend and it was your gun. And it was, you know, it was the lion taming poker stick. It could do a lot of things. Now you just have all these apps on your phone. (sighs) Sad, sad day. Hey, um, again, as we as we talk about the headlines, uh, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, they're still at it. A lot of people are frustrated with the Don because he had Hillary on the ropes for a bit there after the FBI uh, Director Comey came out and, and said, you know, she didn't do a good job with her email. And then Donald, as only Donald could, he had the moment where he could have just gone with it, but instead what he decided to do, was change the subject because, you know, what else would you talk about? Hillary's problems or bring up some issue that seemingly died a few days ago. And yet he keeps revising it. Donald.
1: So one of my guys who's married to a Jewish woman, this is a very fine person, Dan Scavino. He put out a tweet talking about crooked Hillary Clinton. And on the tweet was a star. It's a star, like a star. CNN started this dialogue going, it's the star of David. And because it's the star of David, Donald Trump has racist tendencies. These people are sick, folks. I'm telling you, they're sick. Actually, they're the ones with the bad tendencies when they can think that way. They're the one. Then they said, remember what I said, but there's money around the stars. You know, they took the star down. I said, too bad. You should have left it up. I would have rather defended it. Just leave it up and say, no, that's not a star. David. That's just a star. Shh.
4: <laughs> quiet, Donald. Just be quiet. Well, this comes because they let him do a rally yeah. instead of a prepared speech. And when he does a rally, he just sort of talks about whatever he would like to bring up. Open mic with Trump and he no, Donald. gets off message. You need to stay on point and just oh. beat away. I mean, the, the point that they had, uh, there was a, um, a super PAC that put out a commercial that had Comey, director of the FBI... And Hillary Clinton, and you have Hillary Clinton saying, I did not send any classified emails. And then they had a clip of Comey saying, we had 101 classified emails and all, you know, so he listed all the- And then just throw the video out.
3: Just don't talk. It was just the video. Just put the video out there.
4: Then instead of (laughs) talking about that more, he comes out and brings this up from a couple days
3: ago. He 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 can't help himself but he just reinvigorated the entire issue and then he brought up the let it go video the let it go work or book the fro yeah he the frozen, he, he compared
4: yeah. it to a, on twitter compared to this whole situation to a frozen coloring book that had a similar star on it
3: they've got a star <sighs> so let's change the subject yeah let's let's go to let's go to a happier place uh, for example let's say this is what I'm worried about with these kids because they're not using their imagination. And, well, maybe all they're using are their imaginations, right? So there's a guy from Garden Grove, California, high school student that expressed his love for his favorite video game by bringing the game as his date to the prom. Mm. All right, Chris Burwell shared photos of himself and the disc of Nintendo video game Super Smash Brothers Melee. And he he took Melee to the prom.
4: Have you played that game?
3: I've played Smash Brothers. I don't know if it was the Melee one.
4: It's just a different version of Smash Brothers.
3: But it's, in, it's in a fun that, game, right? Well, there's two lovely people, women, right? Okay. In Smash Brothers,
4: I've never played the game.
3: Uh, there's there's Princess Peach. Yes. Peachy. And then there's like there's something Daisy, Mrs Daisy or something. Okay. Is it Princess Daisy? I don't know. Uh, maybe there's two princesses. So we have video of him hmm. and Mrs. Peach. And just I just wanted to hear what Mrs. Peach had to say about going to her first prom with a high school boy.
9: Hi. Yeah. Ooh. Hmm. Wee. Yeah. Sweet. Uh-huh.
4: Wow. Are these direct quotes?
3: I don't think English is her first language. Probably not. She has a hard time putting sentences together. Yeah, it's just sort of
4: sound.
3: Yeah, just sounds. Yeah. Hmm.
9: This is fun.
3: There was a phrase. Oh,
10: did I win?
3: You won, lady. You got to go to the prom. That's Peach. There you go. Isn't that great? What's happening to our kids now is they think they're dating video game characters. Or was he just
4: making a joke and having some fun?
3: No. He said, it was always going to be Smash.
2: Hmm. Okay.
3: Well. I'm not like a total loser, (laughs) but but I don't know any girls that I would take. So then he thought, what do I love more? Like you would have taken some Star Wars lightsaber. Maybe. Ben would have taken a tub of homemade ice cream. Sure. Oh, yeah. That's with a With bar of soap and some hair in it. Yeah. And, you know, he just decided to take his Super Smash Brothers Melee video game. But, boy, by the way, her voice, sultry. Right, right.
4: I can see the attraction there.
3: Caution. Ter- terrain. Terrain.
9: Pull up. Wow,
3: I
4: wonder what happened there. It's weird. It's like a GPS system for some maybe, they,
3: maybe they're about to crash or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what else is going on in the headlines that uh, you need to worry about? So we just
4: celebrated 4th of July. Yeah. Independence, patriotic, patriotism, people really patriotic on that day. The share of people who are extremely proud to be an American has dropped sharply. Wow. From 70% in 2003 to a new low of 52% today, according to a new survey by Gallup. Really? So in 2003, 70%. Today, 52%. The long term decline in extreme pride in the country, including steep drops in early 2005 and in 2013, are likely linked to a rising dissatisfaction among, Amer- among Americans in the general drift of the country and its economy, according to the Gallup poll. At the height of the patriotic uh, fervor in 2004, it said that uh, 55% of Americans said they were generally satisfied with the way things are going. Since then, the rate of satisfaction is mostly held below 30%, according to the polling organization.
3: Wow. So, so people we're, were
4: satisfied with the way the country is even lower.
3: Well, that's kind of sad.
4: So there's plenty of enthusiasm among Americans for their country. 29% of the public surveyed by Gallup from June 14th to the 23rd said they were very proud to be an American, while 13% said they were moderately proud. Only 1% said they were not at all proud to be a citizen.
3: Huh. Well, that's – I mean, huh? that's good, but bad. What's happening to America? What could we do to,
4: to raise the level of patriotism in oh. the country?
3: I got an idea. What's that? Uh mm, how do you say this without offending somebody? Uh oh. Maybe let's just put a trigger warning out there, just trigger warning. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Maybe um get a whole new political process. We could. <laughs> uh maybe postpone any election for yeah. two years. Okay. Allow the sitting president to leave. And bring in, you know, some third party person to just sit there and babysit until we can sort this out. Really? Yeah.
4: You think that would make people happy? Well, I mean, it's you're you're in a weird
3: position now. Do you trust the one that's been proven by the FBI to be lying, or do you trust the one that's been proven by the rest of the press to be lying? Right? You know, a, a racist? Well, yeah. misogynist. You know? Yeah. Or you just go with one of the other parties. Could so maybe that's what you do. You just automatically put Mr. Johnson in. Okay. Keep Secret Service on him so he's not allowed to go to Colorado. Yeah. He has an affinity
4: for yeah. product. Yes.
3: And then, or then get the Green Party, make her the vice president. Boom. Yeah. Bada boom. Bada boom. Fixed it. Would you though? No.
4: I think you'd still have. What's wrong with our country?
3: Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah. You know, but again, these are like the ebbs. This is just this. We're just in, we're just in a we're just in a dip. We're just in a dip. We'll, we'll I'm not ba- calling anyone a dip. We're just You're predicting a comeback. I'm predicting where there's a dip, there's going to be a blip. Okay. We'll see what happens. There's going to be an upward trend. I hope. So bad. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, Tracy Gleason, professor of psychology and psychological director at the Wellesley College Child Study Center. She's going to be with us, folks, talking about the importance of childhood play And uh, you know, allowing their imagination to take hold. Are we are we allowing enough uh, playtime? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
0: Very good friends, ready when you want to play. They happy when you happy, sad when you are sad, and they always
9: believe. Everything
3: you say. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you were at work and heard someone talking to, let's say, nobody, you might be a little weirded out, right? Talking to an imaginary person can sometimes see, be seen as socially awkward, but for young children, these imaginary friends could actually be the ones who teach kids social skills to begin with. Joining us is uh, Tracy Gleason, and Tracy is a professor of psychology and the psychological director at the Wellesley College Child Study Center. She's a former preschool teacher and mom of a 10-year-old of 10-year-old twins. And uh, we found a wonderful article that she wrote about this topic on the Conversation.com. Dr. Tracy Gleason, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
3: This uh this is a I think an interesting topic for today's day and age. We we have so many things that can occupy our children's minds and their time. But it, it seems like they're not, they're not just out using their imagination like we used to. Is, is that true, or am I just being an old fogey?
0: <laughs> well, I have to be honest with you, that is something that I worry about. Uh, I think most of the time when children do interact with imaginary companions, it, it starts because they have time to themselves. Uh, And there is some evidence to suggest that pretend play in general is something we turn to when we don't have a lot of other stuff going on, when when we aren't scheduled into activities. So it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say, you know, definitively that we do it less now than than we used to. Uh, I I don't have evidence of that. But it does, you know, sort of practically speaking, it does seem like children do have more and more kind of scheduled activities earlier and earlier in their lives.
3: One of the things that you you talk about is um, this imaginary friend kind of idea um, with our children. I guess that's a normal part of child development uh, is is having and learning, I guess, social interaction through either real experiences or imagined. Yeah. Or role-playing even.
0: Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that children use their imagination, and in fact, adults as well, uh, in their interactions with other people. Um, Children who have imaginary companions uh, are actually quite common. We think of them as as kind of rare, but in fact, there's a study that um, that looked at children up to about age seven and discovered that about 60% of them had an imaginary companion at some point. Now, I should mention that that included both invisible imaginary companions, which is kind of the classic idea of what an imaginary companion is. But also um, there's a category of imaginary companions that we call personified objects, things like stuffed animals Mm. or dolls or toys or blankets. Really, any object you can think of can be made into a friend Um, that children also use and animate and personify uh, as if they're real people. So if you include both the objects and the invisibles, it's it's something that happens a lot.
3: And and I I guess they're doing it. Why? What, what is there, you know, what's the developmental need here that they're working on?
0: Well, um, your question kind of assumes there is a developmental need, and, and you're probably right, at least some of the time. Um, and, and you know, the question also sort of assumes there's a reason, uh, when in fact, I think there are probably as many reasons why children create imaginary companions as there are imaginary companions themselves. Um, first and foremost, I think children create imaginary companions because it's fun. Uh, It can be very entertaining to have somebody else there that you can play with, um, especially if they want to do what you want to do. That's kind of nice. But at the same time, children use imaginary relationships to work out all kinds of things, um, to explore ideas about relationships, such as um, ideas about friendship, Uh, it's very safe to get in an argument with your imaginary friend because you can decide when that argument is over Mm. and you can figure out, you know, what has to happen in order to to make it um, resolved. Whereas with a real friend, boy, you know, those other little kids are so unpredictable, it's hard to know what's going to happen. So children can can use these imaginary forums for exploring negative emotions or tough ideas or things that have scared them uh, or just simply things they have really enjoyed.
3: Can can parents – I mean it seems powerful to be able to watch your child engaging with their imaginary friend because it, it seems like it would give you a whole other view of what's going on in your child's head.
0: Yeah. I mean to the extent that parents can observe their children interacting with imaginary companions or really engaging in any form of pretend play – uh, they can get some ideas about what is on their children's minds. Um, but one of the things that a student of mine, Rachel White, and I discovered is that among parents who know about their children's imaginary companions, because most of them do, but, but not all, um, we do find that the imaginary companions appear a lot, not so much when the children are, say, by themselves or playing, but often in conversation with adults. So it's, it's almost like a conversation starter, like, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, um, mom's business trip, and the child might say, well, you know, my imaginary companion went on a business trip, too. Um, so you, you're able to... Uh, bring a topic to the table that only you know about. And then, you know, the parents need to ask questions to know what's going on with your imaginary companion. So it's also kind of fun because hmm. you control it.
3: And, and how much of that? So I guess then the parent just engages. Oh, so tell me where your friend went and, and starts engaging and allows the child to kind of go with their story.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then you have all these wonderful things happening because the child is practicing narrative, which is pretty important to us um, as social creatures, and they are engaging in a in a kind of perspective taking, thinking about what their imaginary companion was thinking about and doing, and, um, and, and they also are, you know, inventing details and being creative and coming up with, with stories about, you know, what the imaginary companion does for a living that it would need to go on a business trip. Hmm. So, and then beyond all that, they're interacting with and engaging with an important person in their lives and having this, this wonderful, fun interaction around um, the imaginary companion
3: and I, I could just see some people worrying that well honey okay let's let's talk about my tr- i mean like i mean maybe they wouldn't but d- there's really not a need to worry about this at all
0: not remotely um i I've, I've been doing this research for a long time and and you know i'm obviously in touch with a lot of the other people like marjorie taylor at the university of oregon who's been doing this for ages and ages and i think in all the years that she and i have been doing work in this area she encountered one child in whom she was not entirely certain that the child knew that the imaginary companion wasn't real. I've never encountered a child who didn't know that. And in fact, sometimes I'll I'll interview a child who has an imaginary companion and I'll be asking questions about how old is your friend and uh, what his name is and if it's a boy or girl and where it lives and, you know, just sort of basic stuff like that. And maybe halfway through the interview, the child will say to me, you know, he's not real. And this, you know, they're kind of concerned, you know, Tracy,
3: you know, he's not real, right? Yeah. That's great. <laughs>
0: Maybe this, this lady's a little too into it. I don't know. I gotta, gotta make sure that we're on the same page here. And I will say, I know. And then, and then we'll go right back to the interview and it's all fine. Interesting. So they just kind of check in, like, just make sure we, you know, we know what we're talking about here.
3: This is fascinating. And um, I, I don't ever remember, having imaginary friends but so I wonder if I missed something let's take a break Tracy we'll come back I want you to tell us more about the power that this can have for unlocking different perspectives and being able to I guess voice and, and share more with our family or our parents um, having these imaginary friends we're speaking with Dr. Tracy Gleason um, from Wellesley College Child Study Center and uh, she's filling us in giving us the tools the information we need to be better parents to understand our children we'll take a break we'll be right back To the Matt Townsend show, on the phone with us, Dr. Tracy Gleason, and she's talking to us about an article we found that she um, that she authored in the conversation. Why make believe play is important is an important part of childhood development, and we've been talking about these imaginary friends that the kids have. About sixty percent of uh, children, is, if it sounds like, will either have an imaginary friend or kind of a. Um, a Personified object, their teddy bear, something that they can, yeah, you know, use as a, a tool, I guess, in interacting with life, a safe space in a way. And Dr. Gleason, thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, sure thing. What? Um, so when it comes to the imaginary friends and uh, the imaginary friends or the uh, personified objects that our children play with, is I guess the idea is this this gives them a chance to have a voice. It gives them a, a safe uh, place because it seems confusing in a way because they have to deal with their personality, but also they have to make up the personality and the narrative for this imaginary thing. But when you also think about it, that's some serious learning. I mean, that's Absolutely. that's some major negotiating going on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's, I think, one of the most fascinating aspects of this play Uh, And not only are you keeping in mind who you are and who your imaginary companion is, but you are also inventing a relationship that exists between the two of you. And one of the things that we find is that some children invent relationships that are egalitarian, like friendships, uh, and some children invent relationships that are more hierarchical, um, usually where they themselves are kind of like the parent and the imaginary companion is the child, but hmm. you do find somewhere uh, the child is, is the child and the imaginary companion might be more of a kind of mentor or um, not necessarily a parent per se, but somebody with more power and competence than the child themselves. Um, so, you know, the fact that they are inventing these relationships and that they resemble different types of real relationships suggests that, this is an area in which children can kind of explore what relationships are all about.
3: And I guess, uh, is there an age where we're, we're thinking, okay, maybe it's time your imaginary friend stays home from work? <laughs> <laughs> or, well, I mean, is there is there a point that this ends, I guess, just naturally? Or, or is right. some form of this still going on inside of each of us that helps us distinguish who we are from others or...
0: Right, uh, excellent question. I think that's that's probably something we need to do a lot more thinking about because it's true. You don't find a lot of children who are, say, ten or fifteen, or adults in the workplace who are, you know, say, my imaginary companion went on a business trip. Um, <laughs> that that isn't something that really occurs so much. Um, oh, it
3: doesn't. It does in my world. Just so you know, <laughs> I just have this one guy. I don't want to mention
0: names. Well, but I'm not sure if it does happen, if that's necessarily a problem, because, as I said, I mean, even the youngest children know they're not real. And that's usually the best signal that somebody is, you know, got it all together. Yeah. Um, So, you know, even if your adult friend has an imaginary companion, but, you know, will admit when pressured that that, this is something that I've made up there's no reason why that can't still be a fun thing to do. What we find is that typically children stop talking about imaginary companions around the time that they start formal schooling, like maybe kindergarten, first grade, but you can still find them if you ask about them. And, in fact, there's lots of evidence that children in middle childhood and even in adolescence have, sometimes have, imaginary companions, but they they have a slightly different form than the, the ones from early childhood um, they they tend not to be talked about out loud, but maybe just thought about. Kind of, you know how little children often narrate what they're doing? Yeah. They talk a lot about the activities they're engaged in, and they just kind of do a little sing song thing maybe while they're playing. Um, when that kind of external um, voice or narrative disappears and becomes internal, that's around the same time that imaginary companions kind of disappear or stop getting talked about. But they might actually, you know, they go underground and, and still be present in many children's lives. And as for adults, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking particularly about real people, but imagining conversations mm-hmm. um, with Anticipate, yeah. Yeah, anticipating arguments or, you know, maybe you have great news to share and you're thinking about how you might say it or, um, you know, the different ways that you could present it. Um, or you're you're anticipating a job interview and, and maybe you've never met your interviewer, but you might imagine a conversation with this, you know, real person, but who's imaginary to you because you haven't met them yet. And you might imagine what they're going to ask you and what you're going to say in response. I think that's a lot of the same skills as we see children using with their imaginary companions in early childhood.
3: Yeah. No, in fact, it's interesting to think of it that way because it also seems like you have a huge advantage to have a big imagination. I mean, it it, it allows you to see so many other things going on. So how do we – if we have a child uh, that maybe we're too worried is getting maybe too caught up in tech and, and not being creative enough or not generating their own, you know, play or their own activities? Are there things we could do to introduce more imaginative activity?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, You know, there is a wide range of individual differences in how much children enjoy pretend play. Some kids would pretend from morning to night, given the opportunity, and other kids really just aren't that into it. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I I think having a, a... a well-functioning imagination is uh, really important. You know, we, we need to use it to do things like consider different options uh, if we're trying to make a decision or to generate counterfactuals. You know, if I do A, you know, would B happen or C happen? Or, you know, what if I did B, then, you know, what would happen? Um, we use our imagination for that kind of work. So so it is important to um, to develop it. But pretend play isn't the only way that you can develop it. And, in fact, in – in many technical kinds of activities, um, there is a fair amount of creativity and imagination so you know i'm not i'm not sure it's necessarily a problem if somebody isn't way into pretend play um but I think encouraging different ways of thinking about things and consideration of of stuff that is outside of the here and now uh, is the essence of the of the skill that we're trying to develop yeah. here.
3: It's, I, it, it I love that idea. That we know they're so different, but some of us get panicky because how come your children are all doing this, and my child just sits there and bounces a ball?
0: Right. <laughs> well, right, and and, and certainly if a, if a child is kind of stuck in a rut with their play, we we might want to do things to facilitate interest in other. Um, activities um preschool teachers do this kind of thing all the time where they you know they see that the pretend play has turned into kittens who just meow at each other and uh and they you know they might introduce a new idea or a new prop or a new scenario to try and, you know, pull the kittens back to human or maybe pull them into a different scenario where they're where they're kind of operating differently. Because um, children, you know, they do sometimes kind of get stuck into a little way of doing things and, and maybe need a little help to, to pull themselves out. Um, but, you know, most of the time children are following, well, when they're allowed to, children are following their interests and uh, exploring um, lots of different aspects of various topics and materials and and allowing opportunities for that and providing an environment that opens up doors rather than leads you down a single path is probably the secret to to fostering this kind of thinking. Yeah.
3: Well, Tracy, we appreciate you. Uh, Keep up the great work there at uh, Wellesley College um, as the psychological director there. That's wonderful stuff. We appreciate you. And, wow, kids, they're just beautiful. And they're so different, right? Just remember the little things you used to do. I just, oh, there's so many stories. Let's all be more patient. Let kids develop. Trust trust a lot of the stuff that they'll just do naturally to learn. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll visit two of our favorite kids down at BYU Sports Nation and uh, see what's going on on their show. That'll be at the top of the hour. We're wrapping up. The day, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, one of my favorite times of the day. Uh, Right there with uh, going back to sleep after the show and then my midday lunch and nap, and then going to bed at night. This next segment, the one I love the most, is where we go visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Today, it's Spencer Linton and Brian Logan. Hello, gentlemen.
5: Matthew, it is always a pleasure.
3: It is a pleasure to be with you both.
5: Especially on July 7th of 2016.
3: Yes, if you're keeping score. Or
5: dates. (laughs) Or something
3: like that. So here is the deal. And I'm glad Brian's there because Brian will appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, Brian, I was walking down the hallway that leads apparently only to my office. Because it seems that everybody that comes down that hall goes to my office. Um, And here's what happens. I walk. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my phone. And I could just sense this presence. And I look over. And standing there just leaving... A recording room, uh, we'll call it a studio. A recording studio was the Spencer Lamar Linton.
2: Mm-hmm. Your middle name is Lamar. No.
3: Okay.
5: Um, it's Kent, but close. Spencer
3: so. Kent Linton it was standing there, <laughs> and we we shook hands in a very, you know, I th- I thought very respectful way, and um, and I said, "Spence, what are you doing? Do you remember what you said, Spence?"
5: Causing trouble.
3: Causing trouble, probably. And you said, I'm just laying down. I'm just recording some stuff. And that was it. Okay.
5: On, B- on BYU, right? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Then
3: he went away. Now, Spence, I got a surprise for you. Okay. I went and tracked down, I think it was Mallory you were yes. with. I yes. I went and tracked down Mallory, and she gave me the raw footage of what you were recording. Oh, boy. Because I wanted to catch it. So here is raw footage, <laughs> never been touched. Footage, Spencer Kent Linton doing a little studio work.
1: Here we go. Your name, you blow me off like it's all the same. you little fierce in and I'm taking away like a bomb. Yeah, baby. She breaks, she breaks. <laughs> oh, baby. She moves, you were killing moves. it.
3: I always I was a William Hung fan. Yeah. Is that William Hung? Yeah. No, they said that that was you doing no. William Hung.
5: No, that help. No. Nobody can impersonate that. I mean, that's elite level entertainment. Dude, that
3: Absolutely. sounded just like you, though.
2: Lamar, I didn't know
5: you had it in you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't you. You're saying that
2: was, no, unfortunately, that, that was not. the He's,
3: William Hung.
2: I Wait, wish, I wish it were me. Hey Matt, you know, what I was thinking what uh, earlier. I was thinking, how come I haven't been on your show?
3: What well, you ha- you're on my show all the time?
2: I mean, like fully on your show, like as a guest, like for all three hours. Well, what would we talk you know about? I could talk-
3: what would we talk about, Bryce?
2: I don't know. Rainbows and cotton candy. Unicorns. <gasps> Unicorns. Whatever you want. Butterflies.
3: But I, you know why? Because here's why. The minute I got you on, you'd start talking religion. Uh, That's just how you roll. That's how you roll.
2: I mean, every, there's religion all around us, Matt. I That's could tie true. in, you know. That's true. No, don't. Don't even worry like about it. About it. But I, but I don't have to talk no. about religion. We could talk about whatever. And you Let's, know what? We you know what. You know what, Matthew? I won't I, even. I, you don't even got to pay me, man. No. I do
3: I you know what though, Brian? I do need to take a break soon, and we we need. Maybe you could come guest host or something.
5: Sure. <laughs> Brian Logan, to, do you really want to do this? I would love to guest host. <laughs> it's only three
3: hours, Brian. Matt,
2: do you really want Brian Logan to I do this?
3: I won't even care because I'll be gone. What's
2: well, the issue. But
3: it's I, Brian. It's three it's, hours of work.
2: What would I do, though? Like, what would I talk about, I guess?
3: You'd have question. to – like, today, for example, we interviewed a guy in the first hour about uh, violence, criminal violence in America.
2: Oh, yeah, because people are getting – then Yeah.
3: yeah. Then last mm-hmm. hour, we, uh, this just a few minutes ago, we talked about make-believe friends, imaginary, people with imaginary friends, f- kids Ooh, especially.
2: You know what? I actually believe in imagine- imaginary
3: friends. No, totally. And friends. they're good for you, we found out. And then in the second hour, we talked about psychiatry and technologies changing the way we manage mental health. Mm. Mm. See, so it, it'll be fascinating.
2: Yeah, I, I'll learn Kay. a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm going to set I it up. I can I'm, speak, you know – to a lot of those things. No, you totally totally yeah. expert level, but but you don't need I can, to. I can guide the ship.
3: Oh, you know, for sure. Very easily. You I'm going to have my people call your people.
2: What if we do this though? What if we what if we test it out? What if I come on for like 30 minutes Okay. and we talk about since you know, since it's more of like an interview style. Yeah. What if we talk about you know the non LDS culture at BYU and kind of just my experience? We
3: could, you know, what honestly that would be a fascinating discussion.
2: Okay, so now that you're excited, I may have to send you an invoice now. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, you got an <laughs> invoice. Some, I okay, <laughs> Just send that. Just send that to Don Shaline. Don will take care of that. I'm
2: going to send it to uh, Jeremy.
3: Okay, I, let me quiz you on this though. What? Okay, let's say you're the Los Angeles Dodgers on the Fourth of July weekend. You're having a celebration of America. You present two Eagles that fly around the stadium and then never come back.
5: At the Los Angeles Dodgers game? <laughs> yeah.
3: What, what would you guys do to get your Eagles back?
5: I, I have no idea, but fittingly, it was Independence Day yes. when that happened.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, and they went for Independence <laughs> They kept power teasing the eagle. They kept teasing their trainer because, like, the eagle would swoop down to, like, almost land on the, on the trainer's hand. But then it would fly away and, like, nah, nah. And, <laughs> and just they – I guess eventually they caught one, uh, you know, or it kind of came closer and they got it. And then the other one, I guess, they've still struggled to get. But <laughs> I don't know. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, you can't shoot you it, do, right? You don't Bro, shoot he's teasing it. teasing
2: me with those treats. Yeah. Get over here. <laughs> It, you, it, you can shoot it if it's like attacking people, I guess.
3: Well, I don't know. It's an eagle, maybe. Oh,
2: well, that's what happened when like they shot the gorilla. It was like it's a gorilla. Yeah,
3: but it's not the America symbol. That's uh, the Congo symbol, I think.
2: I get what you're saying. Yeah, like you can't shoot. You could shoot like anything, but not yeah. an eagle. Not an eagle. I, gotcha. I mean, an I eagle.
3: An eagle could, you know, carry your children away, and we wouldn't care. Oh. That's uh, just how, uh, uh, how America works.
2: I would say my first boy, not my second one.
3: <laughs> you got to love your kids, right? <laughs> hey, so talk to me about your show. You're still doing it today, right? Absolutely we are. What, what are we going to talk about today?
5: Uh, let's see. The worlds of soap operas and college football will collide today, Matthew. Whoa! wow. On BYU Sports Nation.
3: Like the Titanic. <laughs> it's... It's going to be epic. (laughs) What's going to happen?
5: We have a movie trailer voice guy that we're bringing in. Wow. We've got Matt Brown of Espionation College League Manager, to talk about the latest soap opera development in Big 12 expansion talks. Mm. (laughs) It's rather humorous. So you're going to need to join us for that, as well as Jalen Reyes of the BYU men's volleyball team. Has he gotten over the national championship loss by now? Or maybe he'll never get over it. Yeah, we're going well. to talk to him about that.
3: Plus you got Brian Logan.
5: We've got Brian Logan here. And if you yeah. have been paying attention to what's been going on in the Big 12 over the past few days, it's been a circus, even more so than before. Really? We've got different people saying different things and dates targeted for we will make a decision or we might make a decision on this day, but maybe we'll make a decision to not expand that day.
3: Oh,
9: man.
5: I, I, it, it's,
3: it sounds like they need leadership. What they need is Brigham Young University. There, we
5: have asked our BYU Sports Nation fans to compare Big Twelve, the current status of Big Twelve expansion, to a movie or a TV show, and oh. we have got some brilliant.
3: That's answers. cool. My vote, just so you know, Chips.
5: <laughs> Why is it
3: Chips? Because that's uh, Eric Estrada, Pontarelo, Pontarella. He's <laughs> he's a new police officer now. He's a real deal police officer.
5: He's a real deal in
3: Idaho. He is a policeman now. He is full fledged police officer he's a he's a reservist (laughs) but he's got a gun and his it's frank poncherello it's it's eric estrada
5: we've got such great tweets like this from at jk martin 24 coming in mean girls they probably have a burn book of all the schools wanting to join the big 12 (laughs) that's a (laughs) napoleon dynamite it goes nowhere and takes forever to get there (laughs)
3: <laughs> that's great that's great
2: <laughs> so save that's those save yeah.
3: those though don't, don't oh, ruin, you guys got I, a show in got, five minutes
2: uh, anyway, anyway nice. we've got we
3: we can't read that like one 40
5: no 40 great responses oh that's yeah. good
3: okay to have well, twitter go. friends have fun knock Thank them dead you. boys Thank be good you. remember who you are we will uh, that's gonna be a, those are great tweets we gotta I can I only I only get facebook people responding I mean to the degree – they got 40 tweets. We got to get on that. I mean I can get, I can get thousands of Facebookers but
5: – Yeah, but 500 of those are me.
3: Because you think I'm your imaginary friend? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just
5: trying to help the show
3: out. So the uh, – one thing I'm just going to tell you, you got to go find our Twitter feed at Dr. Matt Show because I'm going to post a really cool play by a soccer coach – from the European League. Um, he was a former European leaguer and an MLS player. He's on the sideline at Columbus's uh, uh, Major League Soccer team, Columbus Crew. A ball comes flying like down from like the goalie area all the way um, across the field. And there's just this coach standing there. And out of nowhere, the ball's flying over his head. And he does what's called a scorpion kick. Where he just kicks the ball, raises his leg backwards, never even looked at the ball really. But I mean he saw it coming over his head and then kicked it behind his back and it went right back into play. Beautiful kick. And anyway, I just think it's really cool. And the fans are like, oh, there goes a ball out of bounds. Boink. Back in bounds because the coach – now normally the, the cool things we talk about would be well, you know, when somebody gets hit with a ball on the sideline, the ball goes back in play. You know, that's usually what makes the story – Today, we're just showing you. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter if you're a retired coach. You can still kill it. Hey, we got uh, a great hero story. As you know, we like to wrap up the show talking about heroes, really, because you too are a hero as well. Um, KUTV, uh, which is a television station here in Utah has filed this report of a firefighter that stumbled upon an unexpected scene on Friday, July 1st at 8 p.m. A man was strangling a woman with a rope on a freeway off-ramp. A crew of Unified Fire Authorities, uh, the fire department here, had just responded to a fire call up Parley's Canyon. There was no fire when they got there. They got back on the interstate. They were coming down the interstate, and uh, they ended up uh, seeing this car stopped, and something was going on. So they noticed that it was awkwardly parked on the off-ramp, and they pulled over. When they approached the car, they saw a man strangling a woman with a rope. The firefighters saw the man, forced the woman into the car, then tried to get away. Uh, Sergeant Randy Riches with Utah Department of Public Safety is investigating the case. said Firefighters stopped the suspect, rescued the woman until the highway patrol troopers got there. The suspect, 22-year-old Juan uh, Echeveste, is uh, now under arrest and is in Salt Lake County Jail. And charges are pending. Riches would not say the relationship between the suspect and the victim, but uh, did describe it as a domestic violence. Both the suspect and the victim are from Utah, and the spokesperson for the fire department said there were four firefighters involved in the rescue. Two of them got the suspect out of the car. I don't think there's any doubt that they did what they felt was right at the right moment. And by the way, saved a woman's life. So to the fire department, the Unified uh, Fire Authority in Utah, you are the heroes of the day. And all of us really can play the role of hero, just being there for each other. I challenge you, do what you can to be the best you can be. If you're struggling, get help. Uh, Make a call or the rest of us, let's just pay attention to the people in the world that need Just a little support, a little help. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll be back again tomorrow to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll talk again tomorrow. Be good.